knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created, and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 235. Today I'm joined by my good buddy, Tony Peterson, and we're talking big woods, open country, and man's best friend. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. You, you might have thought I was going to say a bad word there, but we're going to keep it clean for the kids here today. Going to keep it. Going to keep it clean. I uh, hope everyone had a good Father's Day uh, this past weekend. Uh, you know, this this is always the weekend where you get a little bit of a free pass to do whatever it is that you you want to do. So I actually. Uh, went out and hung some trail cameras, did a little bit of deer work, got into the kayak, did some kayak around, got a good sunburn, broke out the smoker, did a little cooking on some, on some flame, which is always good for father's day. So all in all, my, uh, my father's day weekend was pretty good. I hope you guys, uh, had a good one, had a good one as well. Maybe had a chance to get out and do a little bit of deer work. It was hot though this weekend, man. I was really hoping for a little cooler weather and this week. It's supposed to be a little cooler, um, which would would have really been nice this past weekend or 
would have been even better this upcoming weekend to get out and, and do some of that. It was it was off to a rocky start this past week. The wife's transmission went out of her car, so I had to go get a car trailer and drive two hours and pick her up because she was on her way to back from seeing her 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 folks or her sister who was in from the West Coast. And it got off to a rocky start, but it ended ended pretty well. And then on top of that, um, this morning I had a trail camera picture come through from one of my cell cameras on a piece of big woods that I had scouted over the summer or I'm sorry, over the spring and got proof of life of one good buck, uh, remains to be seen what he turns into, but he's, he's, he's on his way. We'll put it that way. And then one other one that I can't quite tell that he was behind the first one that I had seen. Um, but just his body alone looks bigger. And from what I can kind of make out from rack, like his frame just looks bigger. I can't tell how many points he might be having or if he's how much he's splitting or, you know, I can't tell on any particulars. Of course, at this point, you can't really tell particulars in general, regardless, just at this point in the year. But given at what the frame kind of looks like and what I could see from a distance, that deer shows, I think, probably more promise than the one I could see that I could see really well. Unfortunately, there weren't any follow up pictures. I haven't haven't seen him. So hopefully we'll get a uh, get a closer look at that fella. But, you know, all in all, I have to say some of the scouting that I did this past offseason seems like knock on wood, it's starting to pay off. It's like I'm, all the cameras I play. That's always the fear when you go to new places, you know, especially tackling some big timber and stuff like that. It's like you. You go, you do your scouting, especially if you don't live there and you're kind of, you know, just spending some, you know, long weekends there, two days maybe here and then two days there. And then by the time you know it, you know, you got to start putting cameras out and stuff. And, you know, it's always kind of a crapshoot and you hang your cameras and stuff like that. And in that, you know, the big ones, I've talked about this at nauseum. There's just not a lot of science. You, you, you don't, you know, have that big hammer scrape or you know, hammer rubs or whatever it is that tickles your fancy that you like to hang cameras on and stuff like that. Certainly no food. There's no agriculture around there. So it's not like you can have like a primary food source or something like that that they're going to use during the summer to even just get your intel. And so, you know, that first hang of trail cameras in a new area like that, you're always kind of hoping you're at least in deer, that you're at least getting pictures of deer. Um, you know, you can live with maybe you don't have bucks on camera or, you know, or maybe you get one or two and it's just not as, as good as you'd like, but at least you're seeing deer. Um, and I've had those before where I've hung cameras and just got squad douche. Uh, but these cameras that I've hung, at least the cell cameras that I've hung in this area, I'm getting deer consistently, um, which was surprising to me if I'm being completely honest. I thought I was going to, I was hoping I would get deer at least on one of them and then one of them would be kind of a wash. I figured if on the cell cameras, if I batted 50%, you know, or 500, I was going to be happy. Um, but actually I'm having deer on both of them consistently. And the one in particular I'm having bucks on, uh, I'll say relatively consistently for this early in the year. Um, so that's, so that's promising. So I need to get back up there here at some point in the next couple, um, in the next few weeks and check some of the regular cameras that I have out, um, and make sure that they're in okay spots. I actually had more hope for the regular cameras that I set out versus the, um, versus the cell cameras. So, you know, if, uh, if my theory holds true, those ones should be even better, but you know, we'll cross our fingers, but at any rate, we're not going to belabor this up front. We're just going to go ahead and jump into today's show. 
have a cool shirt for you guys today. Got my buddy Tony Peterson on. You know him. You love him. We've had him on a couple different times. Um, he recently started doing a bunch of stuff with Mark and the folks over at Meat Eater. He has a great podcast that he's doing uh, on that platform called Foundations. If you've not, I think it's called Foundations. Um, if you've not checked that out, be sure you're checking that out. Tony is just one of those people that I just I, I absolutely love chatting with and, and talking to. He's probably one of my favorite people to have on the podcast and just one of my favorite people to talk to in general whether it's about hunting, life, whatever, whatever the case is. And today, what we really talked about was a little bit of big woods hunting, you know, where Tony lives. He, he hunts, of course, a lot of big woods. Of course, we talk a little bit of travel hunting. It wouldn't be a podcast with he and I if we didn't talk just a little bit about travel hunting. Because truthfully, you know, over the years, I've gained a lot of inspiration by watching him and, and what he's done. And, and is really kind of, you know, one of the things that inspired me to travel more and just kind of, you know, and throw a caution into the wind and, and, and really just kind of get after it. And then the other thing we talked about was hunting open country, you know, in full transparency, I'll be going to Kansas this, this year. Uh, Tony's hunted those plain States or that open ground or that open country in the past full candor. I've never hunted those types of areas with a, with a bow or anything for that matter. And I'm a, and I'm a complete noob when it comes to hunting that open country and so we talked a little bit about that and maybe some pointers about how to kind of tackle that being a guy coming from Pennsylvania who hunts timber and big woods and things like that, going to a completely different, uh, completely different landscape. And then we kind of wrap things up unexpectedly. We jumped on the topic of dogs. You know, uh, Tony has the podcast, the sporting, uh, sporting dog talk that he runs, uh, which is killer. It's all about hunting dogs and trainers and just anything you could imagine with dogs. He has folks on and talk and uh, talking about it. And, uh, during the course of this show, we kind of pivoted onto that topic and he dropped some serious dog knowledge on me. So hope you guys dig the show. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have, a, I think you're a two-time offender now, man, if I'm not mistaken. You know, it's like you get an orange jumpsuit for this. I do? You, you do. It's it's really it's really fashionable. I, I hear it so goes. What do I get if I come back a third time? Oh, man. it's uh, I, I think we refer to that as the Epstein, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Wow, that is not where I thought that was going to go. No, no, no. What well, was funny because someone I, I posted on Instagram today that I was like, you know, these cameras aren't going to hang themselves, and I got a direct message of someone that responded like, like Epstein, and I'm like, oh man, I was like dark humor this early in the morning, like, you know, I love I, it. I'm always game for it, but it was even a little bit early for me. But that uh, that voice you hear on the other side, the dulcet tones that you are hearing, are from none other than Mr. Tony Peterson. What's going on, friend? Nothing, buddy. Like I was just telling you off air, this is my third podcast of the day, and I'm most excited for this one. Nice, nice. Well, that's awfully generous of you. I, I think that you're probably not telling the truth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being 100% honest. <laughs> I don't have to host this one. I can just sit back and tell you whatever. You, you're, you're doing all the heavy lifting. I'm just here. Right, exactly. I always enjoy being the guest because you're just kind of like, hey, we can go wherever you want to go. I'll make stuff up if I don't know. You know, it's like it's just, <laughs> you know. But man, it, it's funny. I was out in the woods today and it was, uh, I was thinking about it as I was scouting or uh, I was hanging some trail cameras and I texted you just, to, you know, con we were texting back and forth confirming everything was still good. There wasn't any life event that happened that was going to, you know, have us cancel for whatever reason. And, uh, I was like, I'm out hanging trail cameras, sweating my nads off. And you're like, I'm behind a computer. And I just thought for a moment there, like how, like the juxtaposition that is given that you work in the outdoor industry, it's in the middle of the week. I'm out hanging cameras. You were stuck in front of a computer. Yep. And it just made me kind of think, you know, have 
you know, different friends who work in different capacities in the outdoor industry. And everyone always thinks that if you work in the outdoor industry, like you just spend all this time out in the timber doing whatever it is that you want to do. But in fact, today I was the one out hanging trail cameras and you were the one, in fact, stuck behind behind a computer. So I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. It made me kind of stop and ponder for a second. Well, it, you know, part of that is, I mean, it's just reality. Like it's this, you have, I have a job job. You know? Yep. And, but which is everybody understands that, but part of the problem is a lot of people, you know, in, in my position or kind of a similar position in the hunting media present this image that they're out there constantly. Yeah. Like it's very, it's kind of very easy to massage that. And, you know, you can be sitting at home and you haven't scouted deer in three weeks, you can post a scouting picture. Nobody knows. Yeah. And there's kind of, um, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd say pressure, but there's like, you kind of feel that like you should mm -hmm. be, sh you should be showing something like that. And it's mm -hmm. just not, I, I don't think we should, like, I think we should be honest about this. Like, I think it's more relatable if you're like, yeah, I have to sit at the computer. I have to go take my little girls to gymnastics and coach softball. And I'm biting off little chunks of scouting when I can, but it's not like a everyday obsession. Like it gets presented sometimes, you know, right. like you might think about it a lot, but the actual engagement in it, even e-scouting, if you're really busy is like, you know, you're, you're carving that time out. Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone has to work <laughs> in some capacity for a living. Right. And that's just, yep. the, that's just the reality of it. And I agree with you. I think presenting that stuff in a more truthful manner, I, I think, um, would do a lot of people a lot of good. Cause I think some people, if they don't quite understand it, or maybe they don't want to believe it or whatever the case is, you know, end up kind of building this, you know, pressure, you know, up on themselves and, and create this anxiety about this life that they want to lead because they think others are leading it, but it actually doesn't exist, you know? And, and that's the thing I think for social media, I know you and I've talked about social media. I think almost every time we've, we've spoke, um, but it's just, I think you're, and I think you have a really good insight and like, because of like what you've done in your career and you know, where you're at now and just, you know, and you're kind of, I get, I think like you're thinking toward it and kind of where it sits for you and where you think it has its place. Um, but I think I've certainly been guilty of that feeling, the anxiety and pressure. And I have to remind myself, like, these aren't, these are people's curated lives. It's not yep. their life. You know, it's, it's like going to an art show. They don't show you all the shit that sucked that they made for 10 years. They only show you the stuff <laughs> that everyone's going to like, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, and I think sure. social it, media is the same way. It, it is. And it, you know, do whatever you want. But I think, I think we have a obligation in the industry yeah, maybe not even an obligation. Like it's, ne it's necessary to be honest now. Like mm -hmm. you can, you can get away, you know, you used to be able to like when I got in the hunting industry and it was magazines and like produce television shows, like you could present a very specific image and it was very hard to figure out whether that was true. Like you, you just took it for face value. You're like, right. okay, there's no, like I can't follow your daily life or, you know, like Google what you're really up to. And now like you just, if you're not transparent, like it's pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. And so you got to be, I mean, almost by necessity and just honestly to be relatable to the audience now with when they have so many choices, I mean, there's a billion podcasts out there. There's mm -hmm. everybody's writing blogs. And like, if you're not, if you're not being genuine, like you're probably going to, you're going to be in trouble at some point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause the, eventually you'll slip up, right? Uh, there's been, 
you know, times where people have posted things on like an IG story and they forgot to hit the off button and then they went to post and it was like the reaction, but then not like, then it was like <laughs> the, the non-reaction after. So it was clearly <laughs> like it was staged or whatever, you know yeah. what I mean? Or like, and so like there, there's been things like that ha- that have happened and it's like, you know, and then you got the pages out there, like the hunting douche page and stuff like that, which I don't know if you've ever followed that, but those dudes are hilarious. And there's yeah. another guy, I forget what page it is, but he just, his whole MO is just like anyone possible that he finds unauthentic, put them on blast. And that's, yep. and that's the whole intent of the page, you know, which I think it's a little overboard at times, right? I don't think like, you know, kind of come from the school of thought of if you don't have a whole lot of good, good to say, probably better off just not saying, you know, but I'd be lying if there's not a little part of me at sometimes whenever I see it, I'm like, Oh man, that's funny. That's good stuff. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's pretty funny too. A lot of times. I mean, I, I'm just generally like the idea of starting a hate page to me is like crazy, but I see it and I it actually has time I'm like, for that. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you have to stay in that lane and it, it yeah. is like, they're, they're clever, man. Like oh, they're, yeah. they're really good at what they do and it's entertaining and funny. And it is, it is kind of funny to see some of the shit they dig up, yeah. but I just like, it like makes me tired just thinking about <laughs> having uh, to do that. Like you're, you're, you're yeah. like a private investigator almost, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't want to spend my day scouring people's Instagram feeds to see like what ridiculousness that they're up to, you know, no. I'd rather, I'd rather to take that time and scout. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And post uh, something you know, authentic. And you know, one thing we should say on this too, like it's it's a better message to send people anyway, because they're like I, I when I when I had to shut down Hunt for Real when I signed up with Meat Eater, I had people reach out to me like crazy and they were saying like uh, I went on my first trip because I listened to your podcast. Like I didn't like m- multiple people said, I didn't think I had the chops to go do that. Then I did it mm-hmm. and yeah, I killed a deer or I didn't kill a deer, but I went back and I killed a turkey or I didn't kill a turkey, but they like, they got over that hump. And I think a lot of people are sitting there thinking that so many of these people in the industry have, have something so vastly different than what they have in their life, which makes it possible for them to do it. And certainly there are opportunities and, you know, it's, it's not equal footing, believe me. Right. But when you, when you like stick to this public land thing that you and I are so passionate about in this, this do it yourself stuff, it's pretty relatable and it, mm-hmm. it, it helps people just go like, I like, okay, I'm going to try that once. Like, I'm just right. going to see. And I, I love that. And if those people are sitting at home with two little kids or whatever, the, the you know, the demanding job, and they see somebody else who's like pretty relatable going and doing it. I, I freaking love that. Like, I think yeah. that's the best thing we can do. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause like one of the unintended consequences of when I built that trailer was actually that. And I never saw that coming like from a mile away. Like I would have never thought that, you know, and I've had a lot of people reach out to me that they now see like that thing that I built as almost a segue or, or something that they can achieve and do to go kind of facilitate these hunts and do these things. Right. And I never would have thought building that thing was the thing that people would be most interested in, you know, which I found kind of kind of interesting. But I think it was more of a normal guy, regular job wants to try to figure out ways to spend more time in the field and, you know, and travel a little further. And, you know, and and I didn't have any kind of extravagant means to do it. And I think that was the intrigue behind it, it was like, hey, here's this normal guy from Pennsylvania who's built this. <laughs> hoopty trailer you know it's like a, potentially a death trap you know and he's willing to drive thousands of miles and just live in it and to go have the experiences that he wants to have right and that's always been kind of my 
like, I always kind of hope that that's what the podcast or that I would be able to kind of help people do is kind of recognize that you don't have to have a lot of means to, to do it. You know, you just have a lot, have to have a lot of want to, you know? Yeah. And you, can I tell ahead. you why I hate that trailer build? Why is that? <laughs> because it reminds me of how terrible I am at stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. I see. I my, like that to me is almost, I I'm so not mechanically inclined when I see somebody who can just do something like that. It's like, the same thing as when I watch a documentary on like the International Space Station. I'm like, how the hell does anybody know how to do this stuff? Because right. I can't do any of it. Right. That's funny, dude. Because I have so funny story from uh, my younger years when I was like in my 20s, probably I was working at this science center building these like cadaver exhibits and stuff like that. And something broke and I went to fix it and completely used the wrong stuff to fix it and destroyed the thing. Right. And so from there on, like my my nickname was Mr. Goodwrench. Like from that point forward, that was my nickname with all my buddies. So I'm not mechanic mechanically inclined in the least, actually. Um, I just have I'm probably too stubborn to quit is what it is. And it's like and it will just I will just work at it, work at it, work at it until I just figure it out, you know, and it's part of growing up a little bit on the farm, too, because it, it, we didn't have a wasn't like you could go out and buy something brand new every time something broke, you know. And so it was, you know, learning how to weld and stuff like that happened whenever I was probably 12 you know, how to, how to weld some tractor hitches and stuff like that. And so I think I just kind of carried that kind of can do attitude, like for all that stuff forward. And I just decided one day I was like, Hey, I'm going to build this trailer. And I just started watching YouTube videos. And from there, I just, I learned a lot about solar power that anyone who doesn't work in it, like I shouldn't know as much as I do <laughs> for someone who doesn't work in the solar power industry, you know, cause that was the one area that I really kind of studied and tried to figure out. But man, I, I can help you build a trailer if you want a trailer, man. I don't. Dude, if I would, I'll probably get divorced anyway over this deer stuff, but that would do it. <laughs> that would do like, it. If I, if I put, cause my wife would look at that and she'd go, she's, he's never going to finish this. Like yeah. this is going to sit here forever and he's going to just randomly pick and choose times to work on it. And it's never going to go anywhere. That trailer yeah. is going to decompose in our driveway. <laughs> well, so that well. was the, that was the one commitment I made when I started it. I was like, all right, it's gotta be done by hunting season. I was like, come hell or high water, it's got to be done by like September. You know, I was like, and that's, that's it. So I set myself like a deadline and, and I, I don't know that I would do it again, to be honest, just because I spent basically every waking moment that I had free every weekend was just working on that thing, trying to get it done partially because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So everything took me five times as long as it should, you know, or you cut something the wrong length, so you got to recut it, and just it was it was kind of a disaster. But anyway, we didn't we didn't dial up to talk about trailer <laughs> builds. You know, I want to jump into some hunting, man. But uh, we haven't talked in a little while, dude. How's uh how's your spring been? Pretty good. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. 
If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Uh, no. No. Like, turkey-wise? <laughs> or yeah. just generally? Turkey-wise. Uh, turkey-wise was the weirdest, hardest turkey season I've had in a long time. Really? Just, just getting birds to, to work in and, you know... I spent a lot of time. I sh- I I shouldn't complain here. Let me let me let me put this in context. I killed three birds this spring. I have nothing to bitch about, right? Right. I haven't killed one in Minnesota, uh, but I spent most of my time with my nine-year-olds, mm-hmm. and I just didn't have the kind of hunting where if you you know if you put in enough time to get those birds working, you're gonna get one tom that really commits. You're gonna have some just fun like action-packed hunts. I just never felt like other than one magical morning in Wisconsin where I killed two birds. I just never felt like I had that awesome, hmm. like the whole reason you look forward to turkey season, you know, it was just, it was just hard. Do, do you have any uh, rhyme or reason as to why? Cause it's funny. Cause it's, you're not the only person I've spoke with that had a similar kind of feeling and it's just, it's been different States. Yeah. I, I have this, I have the same thing going on with some of my buddies and I don't know. I know at home, uh, the farm that I hunt's getting developed, so the the birds are, just aren't there. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew when I started that I was hunting 18 birds. I knew every one of them, right. and we killed one right away. One of my daughters killed a great big one, which was awesome. And then after that, it was like I was just educating those birds mm-hmm. so much. So I know that I got in my own way a little bit, right. uh, but I didn't have anything else to work with. Right. And you know, and but we went down to Iowa and camped and hunted public land where I killed that buck last year. And I did turkey hunt that two years ago and had a phenomenal hunt. It was just, it was Mm -hmm. awesome. And it was just a dead sea. I killed a bird that walked into my decoys, made no sound. I think it just randomly walked in there. It was like, Hmm. it was just the least fun. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it just didn't, it just wasn't what you need to get out of it. And I don't know why I don't, I I don't, you know, they're talking about the Turkey numbers being down out there a little bit in a lot of different areas. I don't know if I necessarily saw that to where I felt like it would be a, you know, like affect me or affect my hunts this much, but it was definitely, at least for me, a a really weird spring. Hmm. My spring was pretty non-existent to be honest. It's a work blew up basically for me the entire spring. I got one hunt in for turkeys this year that was it i might get one in this coming weekend because i typically go back and do a turkey camp with my my in-laws i ended up having to work like over the course of that weekend the whole the whole weekend and the following weekend so it was the first two weekends of turkey season here that i ended up working all the way through the 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 next one actually went out and wasn't supposed to rain rain rolled in basically rained the entire morning um kind of blew that whole blew that whole hunt out last weekend i was with my daughter and the Poconos riding horses. So <laughs> that didn't happen. And then I was back there again this weekend, uh, scouting the Poconos, like a new piece of public up there that I'm some, some mountain area that I'm trying to get after. And then this coming weekend is basically it. So we're going back home to visit family and I'm going to take my, my gun along and maybe hunt my dad's new property. Cause I'm helping him move into his new cabin and stuff like that. So I might sneak out in the morning and try to get a hunt in. But otherwise, man, it's uh it's been pretty non-existent, but you, I know man. I want to ask you this because I don't think I've ever directly asked you this. I know you use turkey season a lot to kind of prepare for the upcoming deer season, right? 
how much of your percentage wise of your off season kind of work is done during that time frame and how much of it at time frame and how much of it is done specifically related to like I'm going out to scout for deer. That's a good question. Uh, you know, part of the reason that I do, I, I mix in the Turkey deer scouting thing so much is just the new destination thing. Mm-hmm. I just, I love, I love the idea of going to Turkey hunt somewhere with the eye that like, you know, maybe, maybe we'll find something worthwhile. And you know how it is. Like we kind of, we, we tend to kind of boil this stuff down, right? Like I'm, I'm going smallmouth fishing or I'm going Turkey hunting or right. I'm a deer hunter or, you know, I'm going deer hunting, but really like when you're out there, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's not just so cut and dry. And we found, we found places to go quail hunting by deer hunting. And we found places to deer hunt by Turkey hunting. And it's just get, get yourself in cool places. And if you know how it is, if you get into an area that has a lot of deer and you're, you know, on a public land trip, even if you're Turkey hunting, you're like, Oh man, I'd set up there or look mm-hmm. at this staging area. Yeah. And it's just, it's easier for me to justify over the road stuff if mm. I'm, you know, on a turkey hunt versus right. just driving 10 hours away to just scout. I I would love to be in that place where I had the time to go do a lot of that stuff again, where it was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to go see this area of wherever and I'm going to go for the weekend. You, see, you know how it is. It's just hard to justify. Totally. Yeah, it's 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 hard to get away. And, you know, that's what I've been kind of up against, you know, trying to scout this new piece in the Poconos. It's and it's not too terribly far away. It's like mm, two hours and some change. So it's not too bad. Um, but still it's justifying getting the, taking the time away that I'm not really hunting. I'm going up just to scout, walk around, you know, I don't know the area. So a lot of it's aimless walking, (laughs) you know what I mean? At first. Right. And then hanging some cameras, but I did finally hang cameras this past weekend and finally kind of actually got a couple places where I had cell service. I actually got a couple pictures like over the night. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm in a, I'm in this, in a decent area at least. Cause it's just the weirdest like one of the weirdest places I've ever gone to scout and considered hunting. Cause it's just big timber. Like you would expect in the Pocono mountains, but the elevation changes aren't super drastic because you're actually already on top of the mountain. So it's a lot of like swamps and, and stuff like that on the top and just a lot of homogenous, uh, mature timber. And you'll walk through areas and you might, you might look at it and think that there'd never been a deer that had ever passed through there in the existence of the entire piece, you know, just because of, like they don't lay down a ton of sign. It's really minuscule. I don't, I think I, in all the scouting that I've done, I think I've found one actual trail that was clear that like deer are using this, you know, I actually know that's a lie too. One was around the rim of a, of a clear cut. And another one was kind of like going down along this like swampy, swampy kind of area. And it was clear that they were using that, but otherwise, so I, is this ahead. a super low density spot or not? <sighs> I hate to say that it is because Pennsylvania has good deer numbers in general. And so I don't think it's that different up there because there's not like they have more predators. It's not like there's wolves or anything like like that up there. That's like just decimating the numbers. I think more so what it is, is that it's just such vast area. Like we're talking, you know, pieces that are connected together that are like in the tune of like a couple hundred thousand acres, which for deer hunting is, is a lot. That's just like unbroken. And even the private parcels that are there, aren't farms. It's just like people who own large chunks of land. So it just adds to the, you know, if you added all that into the the public land, I mean, you've got hundreds of thousands of acres. It's just like unbroken, you know what I mean? Um, and I just don't find a ton of, of, of diversity. So I don't think that it's that there's low deer numbers. 
I think it's what I'm learning at least is that they really exist in pockets and you're either in it or you're not at all. You know what I mean? And that's really kind of what it is. I've actually made a buddy that lives up there and actually he and I scouted together this past weekend. And that's what I was kind of picking up from him. You know what I mean? As we were scouting and we were looking at sign and it's like, he would say, Oh, that's great sign. I'm like, dude, I would walk past that. Like, seven days out of seven days you know what i mean but there it's like that was that was good sign and like i found scrapes and he was like like the dude if you found scrapes like that's like the holy grail you know he's like because you just don't find a lot of them you know and you don't like i literally i think i found five in a piece that was like i mean that one piece was 1800 acres just that one little section and then i was on a whole different mountain and didn't find any you know so basically four days of scouting you know, and finding five scrapes. That was, that was it, you know, but the caliber of deer is right. Like I saw the one he killed last year. It was a nice 10 point with a, with a drop time, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just, it almost is. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where it's just like your, your natural, like hunting intuition is just like throw it out the window. Cause it's, yeah. it's not going to hunt like much else you've ever been on. Yeah. You got to just recalibrate. I mean, that's big woods. I mean, yeah. and you know, when you're not, even if the, the density is decent, if they're not, you know, making trails and sign and stuff like that, then, you know, they're probably on a big time browse pattern or a mass Mm -hmm. pattern or something. Most of the season, which isn't, even though you're talking about like a concentration, like isn't a concentration like you typically think about. And so it's, it's a scalable issue. And it's just, it is, I, I think, I think it's like the hardest kind of hunting out there. Like, I just think because of the mental aspect, you know, like, like you said, we, we went down to Iowa when we were turkey hunting there in that spot. And my buddy had never been there and he came down there with me and he was like, you know how it is. Like you look around and you're like, Oh my God, there's giant rubs everywhere. And there's (laughs) trails and there's like, yeah, it's stupid. Like it's, it's so easy looking that you just Mm -hmm. feel good being there. Then you get in the opposite kind of environment where you have unbroken timber forever and just not the sign to work with. And you just, it's like a recalibration thing, man. It's tough. It is. And it's like, you have to almost, you know, there's a place that I hunt, uh, in, in a Midwestern state that hunts a lot like this. And that was what I kind of started making using as my analog. Right. Cause I was like, I know in that piece there's big deer cause I've got pictures of them. There's hammers and they put down sign. You think a fork you made. Right. And so I kind of, I kind of told myself, all right, I almost need to hunt it like, like that. But at least there, it's like, there's a lot of topography change in that Midwestern state that kind of will give you some funnels and some terrain features that they can follow here. It's like, they, they, you just don't have it. Like, there's just not like, you know, ridge system and stuff like that. Like you're literally on top of a mountain and it will run out to a point and that's it. And so there's not like secondary ridges or anything like that. You have to really kind of almost get on the side of the mountain to a degree, like where your side hill and, and try to find like some benches and stuff like that. Like once I did that and started looking for like a bench that kind of, that kind of wrapped around the point of the ridge or whatever, that was when I started finding like a little bit of concentration of sign where I was like, okay, they're aggregating here because this bench system is now feeding into this point and this is how they're going to get around, you know, this, this entire mountain essentially. And, but it's just the weirdest, it's just the weirdest thing. It's like, you'll have the one cool thing is like, I found a big clear cut that just got burnt too. So that is like, I found a couple sheds in it too. And so I'm like, all right, I can work with, I can work with that. Right. And then it's, it's, it's a big burn clear cut that then goes into like some, 
mountain laurel, then it goes into like an oak flat. And I'm like, all right, there's going to be deer here. You know, it's like, there's gotta yep. be, I was like, you know how when you're scouting and you see trees off in the distance, you're like, oh man, there's gotta be a rub on that. Yep. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I said that walking through that place, <laughs> I'd be a rich man, you know, cause it's just all the classic places you would think of. It's just like, it didn't exist, you know? And then the one buck bed I found was in the most random, random place. I ended up following a rub line. I finally found a rub line, followed it out. And it was like wide open timber. He just decided like that just became the place where he laid down frequently. I'm convinced because it was, you know, a little bit worn to the dirt. There was hair in it, you know, but I would have never in a million years thought to look there to find a buck bed, you know? So I'm just curious, man, like big woods, like how do you tackle it? Like, how do you kind of go, how do you go about it? It's, it's where I spend, I'm kind of obsessed with it because it kicks my ass so much. Yeah. And I just, I, I really, you know, what you touched on earlier with the, the concentration, I'm just like becoming more and more of a believer that that's the way to go. Get, mm-hmm. get out there and cover ground until you find a concentration or during the season, observe in season scout, whatever, till you find. And I, you know, I, I might do this like a little bit differently than a lot of people or a lot, like a lot of people in our position, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't look for buck concentrations in the big woods. I just look for deer. Like yeah. I just want to be around deer and yeah. I know if I get around deer, there's going to be probably some bucks around there. And like you said, if you get around three bucks there, one of them is probably going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's just the way it is. And it's just a matter of, at least for me, covering a lot of ground, doing a lot of the March mm-hmm. scouting, and then just being open to the idea that I'm going to get it wrong almost always in the season till I get on something yeah. and I hate it cause I don't find repeatable stuff a lot of times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it's just, even when I'll find like a little Creek crossing where a Creek runs through, you know, a chunk of big woods, I'll be like, this is going to be in my spot. I can show up every year and at least see deer. And it, I just can't count on it. And it's, it's partially cause what you were talking about, like you're dealing with just, just like so much space, so much browse, like not destination. That's why you get excited when you find that clear yeah. cut, you know, like you're like, Oh God, you're like, <laughs> God, thank you. Like <laughs> yeah, this, this is there's food and cover to a destination food source. I'm going to find. And in five years, this is where they're going to bed, you know, like, right. But when you don't have that, it's just, you got all these reset moments over and over again. And you just got to get used to like getting it wrong until you just find that concentration. And it might not be that many deer, but it's enough to really keep you on it. And I, I will say this, like when I found those concentrations, like in Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, it's even if I'm not on the same buck two days in a row, a lot of times, like if I, if I observe something and move in, I'm around enough deer where it usually works out for me. Like when I felt like I get keyed into that, I kill a buck usually, right. but it's not like the buck that I saw that got me over there. He didn't come back. Somebody else did. And so right. you're just like, I'm, I'm hunting for deer, Cause the deer showing me they're here. Right. Yeah. Now I, I follow a very similar kind of train of thought, especially in this place where it's, I just want to see, I, I don't care if it's, you know, doe tracks or whatever it is. That's what I'm really looking for. The other thing I started doing too, there was a, a newer cut that I actually ended up exploring yesterday before I left huge. It's the entire side of this mountain. I mean, it's just like gigantic and it's on the side of the mountain too. So like walking it is, is brutal. And so what I started doing was I actually started walking like all the skid, skid steer trails and mapping them. So I knew where they would go to and how to get like up to the top of the mountain and stuff like that, what I could use for access and, and so on and so forth. 
And then just as I was going, I just started paying more attention to trying to find tracks that were on the ground because I had bare dirt. And I was like, all right, well, this might not be good right now. I was like, but let me pay attention to where the tracks are at. Right. And start marking this now, because in two years, it's likely that these tracks are going to be areas in which you're going to tell me where deer are moving or how they're at least moving through the cut, you know? And yep. so I started kind of marking that stuff. And even though the tracks weren't big, it was more like, okay, deer are congregating here. And then look around and be like, okay, why would they congregate here? You know, and start to kind of put those puzzle pieces together and stuff like that. I was driving and I even said to myself as I was driving, actually I was riding with my buddy Tom as we were in a different area scouting just on the other side of the cut from that the day before. And I was like, man, after, cause he lives local. I was like, after a rain, I was like, dude, I would come up and walk this road and just try to find cut tracks across this road. I was like, and see where they're coming in and out and going to the other mountain. You know, I was like, cause that's going to be, that's going to be the best way to kind of figure out how they're, how they're moving with any consistency. I was like, cause without it, they don't make enough sign in the timber to tell you. Yep. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's like it, when you think about how simple, like how elementary that strategy is, but it doesn't lie. No, it doesn't. Cause you'll get direction too. Right. Yep. The only thing you won't have is time of day. Right. Yep. The other convenient thing to that cut specifically is that there's a little knoll that you come down when you're driving through that you could park and you could probably glass. I want to say probably like 300 acres of the cut, you know what I mean? So you could probably park there and just like use a spotter or binos and watch for movement and then use a spotter. If you see something move and actually be able to glass that cut almost like you would a bean field, you know? Ooh. So that's, that's the one like ace in the hole that I have is like, I was like, I might go up in August and just sit there for like a day or two in the evenings and just watch it and see if I can find anything. But other uh, that, than that, that can be a really good strategy. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that's the one thing about, you know, big wood stuff. If you've got timber operations going on, you, you might have way more visibility than you think. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, you know, it's not like, parking your truck at the top of the hill and glassing from the window, you know, Iowa style or whatever. It's, it's right. vastly different, but it's a, it can, it can be actionable. Like you can, you can yeah. find that scenario sometimes and, and get on them. And sometimes when you do that, you realize there's more deer there than you think. Right. They're just not, <laughs> they're all spread out. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I thought too, and I'd mentioned it to my buddy where we were driving, I was like, one, you could glass from there. I was like, the other thing is, is like, you know, I sent him the pins of the, uh, after I started mapping those skid steer trails, cause I was essentially like, if you can find an easy way to get in that, that you won't blow up a hunt or whatever. Right. Or if you're doing it in August, it really doesn't matter. I was like, but go up to the one corner, hang a saddle and just get in that tree in that top North, North, you know, uh, East corner of that, of that cut. I was like, you'll be high enough. If you get 20 foot up, you'll be able to see the entire cut or 30 feet up, whatever. I was like, and just glass the whole thing from a saddle. Yeah. I was like, you'll see the entire thing, you know, I was like, and then you'll know where they're bedded and where they're potentially living a little bit or how they're moving when they get up or are they going to that West end or whatever the case is, you know, I was like, that's, I was like, that would be my strategy. If I lived close enough to do that, I was like, I just don't have the, I don't live close enough in proximity to make that, you know, make that move, yeah. but you know, it could be good. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I look at that kind of thing and I go, there's seven people in this country who would try that, but it could work. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not knocking it. I'm like, if you, especially if you're a public land hunter, some of that stuff, you know, like we, we, we think we got to, you know, just 
outwork the competition all the time, which is a lot of times true, right? Right. But it's it's not sometimes in the ways we think. Like, yeah, that would be kind of a pain to go do that, but it's gonna it's either gonna tell you an awful lot of awesome stuff or it's gonna tell you that you're over, you know, like you're fishing in dead water. It's time to move on. Right. But it's like nobody else is figuring that out. Like right. you, you you can you can almost bet you're gonna get an edge on those deer over your competition if you did that one night. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. And that's kind of why I was thinking about it, because I was like, exactly what you said. I'll either figure out whether they're in here or they're not, and then I won't waste any time. I did have cell service at the top of that mountain, so I was able to hang a cell camera on the edge of that cut on the way up. There's like a nice little point that kind of comes off where I did find some historical sign, a bunch of bunch of acorn caps and stuff like that from the previous year. So it was like, fingers crossed, you know, it's like just you know, throwing a wish and a prayer at it essentially. But that's kind of my, that's kind of my plan for that area. If you can't tell, it's a little bit of a wish and a prayer at this point, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think if, if you can talk your buddy into going to do that, that's the best scenario possible. Cause yeah. you can just wait for his, his report right. and uh, not have yeah. to go do it yourself. Well, yeah, we are doing, we are using the buddy system, man. Like we, you know, cause he lives there. He shared a bunch of stuff with me and you know, I put out cameras. He knows where all of them at. So he can check them if, if he wants to the cell cameras. I share all that stuff with him. You know, so we have, there's three of us that are kind of, two of us are new to it. He, one of us actually lives in the area, has been hunting for a while. And so we're just actually pulling all of our cameras together and all of our intel together and just kind of sharing with each other. So at least, you know, I mean, he expedited my learning curve by probably two years on that piece, you know, in a weekend, you know? Um, So I felt pretty good about that. Super awesome, dude. I mean, that's, you know, I've talked about this before. It's like, you got to keep your good, the good guys close to you. You know, because there's not a whole lot of guys that would share pins with you where they saw like hammer deer, you know what I mean? And stuff like that and be like, hey, yeah, here, let's let's work this together so we can hopefully both have some success. Yeah, no, it's that. And that's just when you're when you're with the right people, that's fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that, that I mean, it's just working together toward a common goal. That's fun. Yeah. And I'll be stoked for him if he kills a hammer. You know what I mean? It's like one, it'll tell me that they're there, yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is kind of what you want is a little bit of proof of life. But yeah. they're there. So, yeah. Now he's, he's shared some pictures with me, man, that I was like, Whoa. I was like, all right, yep. I'm willing to put some time into this place. Yeah. I was like, you know, we'll, we'll get it figured out, but they're uh, there. Yeah. I, th- I think we, I think that if you get probably even a half a section in most places where whitetails live, mm-hmm. there's a buck that goes through there every day, every other day that most of us would be happy with. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, the one he shot last year was a, was a hammer. I think it had ended up, I think he scored, had it scored and it was like one thirty three and some change with a drop time. Yeah. But the mass, like he had a beer bottle next to it and the mass of that thing, like out at the end was the same mass as a, a like a regular sized beer bottle, just ridiculous amounts of mass. Like it yeah. just, so, well, I mean, they're definitely I mean, there. Yeah. It's 133 inch public land white like that's an awesome deer in the big woods i mean it's like yeah i mean i'd fall over myself you know every day of the week to try to kill that you know but yeah no there's there's nobody alive who goes and sits on public land who sees that coming down the trail that's like uh no thanks yeah i'm gonna pass (laughs) like if i ever get to that point just you've got the full go ahead to slap me drive from your from drive from where you're at to pennsylvania and just come slap me if i get to that point dude for sure i was talking to this guy i He's kind of in the industry, kind of not. He's, he's really, he owns a very successful business. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's kind of got the least thing down in some of the big States and he's killed some huge bucks in like Kansas type, you know, 
we were talking one time and he was asking me about the public land thing and I, you know, like the big buck, like what, what's the potential? And I was like, you know, I don't know, like just telling him what I know, like the range and like, yeah, you can see, I've seen, I've seen booners on public, but it's like, you know, right. You know, it's a unicorn. Right. 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 And he just kind of offhandedly, he's like, yeah, I should go with you sometime. He's like, there's no way I'd probably pass up like a 170 or 180 on public land. I think I'd kill that deer. You think? <laughs> and I was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you better knock off about 60 points. You know what I mean? It's like, and now, and now yeah. you're, now you're cooking, you know? Yeah. Now you might be getting into the range where you could maybe kill one because you've been hunting a whole different, the whole different <laughs> a whole world, different world, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Well, man, you touched on something there. So Kansas, Actually, right before you and I jumped on, I got my email. I actually got my Kansas tag for this year. So I'm headed to Kansas for the first time. Never been there. It's actually going to be probably like 95% of free, a freestyle hunt for me. My buddy Chad went out and turkey hunted it. I was supposed to go turkey hunt it and do some scouting, but that's when work kind of blew up and kind of foiled all, foiled all my plans. Um, but I've never been to Kansas. And we're going to an area that uh, specifically we picked that didn't have a lot of trees, you know, so it's a lot of, you know, ditches and draws and CRP and um, great bird hunting habitat. I have no doubt, um, but uh, I'm going to be a little out of my element, man. So I'm looking for a little, little advice from you, brother, you know, cause it's, it's going to be a different, a different ball game. I mean, my buddy, Chad, when he was out there, he was just like, dude, he's like, the sign is just everywhere. He's like, it's just littered. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm just, Thinking about it in the back of my mind, like how do you, how do you hunt a peak? Because he he said the place that we're potentially going, he that's where he was turkey hunting. My goal was kind of like it's do a lot of road glassing and try to spot something, and then go in like the next day or that evening or whatever and try to set up one. Or if it's better, just try to go in and set up on it to get it when when it gets up, you know. But what he said was is that the area that we're going to be in, um, there wasn't a lot of a road glassing opportunities. Like he was a little surprised by it. So I'm just curious, man, in all your travels, you know, whether it's Kansas, Oklahoma or whatever, you know, Nebraska, you know, similar, different, but similar. Right. Um, How do you kind of tackle that open territory, man? You know, I mean, you got to just look at it like what uh, you like. What's working for you or like what's going to be the advantage, what's going to be the disadvantage, right? Like obvious, Mm -hmm. like you being a Pennsylvania boy, you're going to go the disadvantage is no trees, Right. right? Like that's, it's going to make it a hell of a lot harder, Yeah. but the advantage is the visibility and the advantage is, you know, as a guy who follows a dog around in that stuff a lot mm-hmm. is that the concentrate, like the, the quantity of deer in that stuff is way better than you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And it's usually, you know, is this, are you going to hunt there during the rut? Yeah, it's good. We don't know exactly when we're going to leave yet. It's either going to be, I'm going for two weeks. So it's either going to be the last week of October, first week of November, or it's going to be probably like the second and third week of November. I forget. Okay. We're, we're timing it. To, we're trying to time it to where there's not a um, – because there's like a bird season that happens right there that we were looking at. And I'm trying to like get in between that so we can avoid like the dove hunting and stuff like that. Yeah, you're probably bumping up on the pheasant situation too. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure when it opens down there, but I look at this like – Eddie Claypool kind of kind of clued me into this mindset when I was talking to him about uh, coos deer hunting one mm-hmm. time where because he he doesn't spot and stalk them a lot. He's he's tree stand hunts them mm-hmm. and during the rut. 
And he, I was like, how the hell do you do that? You know, like every, I've never hunted them, but everything you hear is like, you know, right. it's a difficult pursuit. Right. Right. And he's right. killed some freaking toads. And he said, well, I glass up doe groups. And then I just read the terrain and I try to get in between where I know, you know, there's some does living in this basin, does living in this basin, and I'll find a tree on a spine or something. And he's just hunting these rut funnels. Hmm. And I always think about that in the kind of territory you're talking about, even though it like might not seem all that relatable, you're, you're going to have a patch of sumac here and a little creek bottom there. And you're going to have these places where there's definitely deer, mm-hmm. right? And how are they connected? You know, like how is right. a buck going to get from A to B? And we look at that stuff all the time like it's so random and it's not like when right. you when you get out there and even if it's just crp grass there's something to the terrain typically that they'll just get a little bit below like when you get out when, when you glass it you don't see anything when you get into it and you're like oh god there's a little ditch here and there's this perfect side hill trail through there and mm-hmm. you know there's three bushes that are all rubbed up and it's just like again kind of like you got to reset your you like recalibrate and look at this and go okay they're just whitetails. Like, so they're going right. to, they're going to gravitate toward whatever cover they have. They're going to move in a way that tries to keep them hidden. And I think, I think some of the, some of the hunting media out there has made it look like these deer are super visible all the time. Mm-hmm. And they're not like they, right. they, they can be, you know, I mean, they'll be out there running and you'll see them, you know, from your truck, right. but they, their lives are built around moving where they don't, they're not as visible from the road. And right. so like when you get out in that stuff, you just realize like God, they have this figured out perfectly. There's like a, you know, a six foot difference between here and there and they walk two thirds of the way down it. You can't see them. Right. And it seems so like, it, you know, like you, you would think about it and go like, well, who cares? Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like that's everything. Cause that's right. how they go from here to there. And that's how they get to that water. And right. that's how they access that little Creek bottom. And so I, when I get into those way more open situations, I look at it and I go, where can I glass? Cause that's hugely beneficial. Huge, right. Uh, and I, I don't glass from the road. I, I, I don't like that. Like I like trying to find a place that I can, I can get off the road, even if it's like a hundred yards, but it gives me a different look. Mm-hmm. Cause I like, I've seen that a lot, like with mule deer hunting where the, the kind of the go-to scouting method is just to drive around spot one. And it works like you, mm-hmm. you could do that down there, but I've seen so often like the places that aren't visible from the roads, especially by the time the rut, going on down there it might be just some stupid little area that you just can't see because it's around a bend or something like that but you get up on the on a little rise and look and it's like okay this is i'm looking at a different world than the people who are in their trucks 100 yards away right and you know then you kind of get clued into that and then you go okay I, i i can either see something or i can go in there and walk around and find those little connection points and these little concentrations and then you build that plan right you know and, right. it, and like you said, you're kind of open to the wild card that might be the 160 bedded with a doe, you know, yeah. in a shrub row or something. You're like, well, okay, now now everything's out the window. That's where I'm going. <laughs> right, but right. How do I get in between him, him and him, or not him and her, but how do I get in between him and where she wants to go next? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> type of type of yeah. situation. Yeah, and it, you know, I think I just don't think even you know like we maybe I sound like a hypocrite here with the stuff we talked about with the big woods deer. I just don't think they're that random. I think they're just harder for us to figure out. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about like a prairie deer, it's so easy to kind of like build in that excuse. Like they're random, like their movements random. I don't think nature does random very well. Like right. I think, yeah. you know what I, I mean? Agree like, with that. I, would it, agree, I would agree with that. But I think, I don't think that what you said previously was hypocritical though, because I think what we're saying is, is that, that 
it feels very random in the big woods. Right. And I think you yeah. and I would both agree, like they're moving with purpose. It's just, we don't recognize that purpose. You know what I mean? We don't see yeah. the pattern, right? The pattern might be looser yeah. just because the pattern is more broad. Right. It's like, if you're talking about nerd talk, but if you're talking about numbers, right. And you're looking at something that's a really easy pattern to recognize. You're like, well, that's obviously like, there's a logical progression here that's happening. Right. There's logic. Now you expand that, you know, expand that, that pattern. I might not recognize it, but the guy who is a, you know, a, a world renowned physicist will probably see it in two seconds. Right. And so I think that that's what we're saying is that like, look, the big woods feels like there's a lot of randomness because the patterns are so, are so vast or so yeah. expansive, right. That I can't comprehend that pattern. Right. Yeah. When we're talking about chunked up pieces around where I live in, in North of Philly, Smaller parcels, it's like, man, you see patterns all day long, right? It's like, you know, right where the deer are going to be, where they should be, when they're going to move there, right? And I think that that's how people think about hunting. And so whenever they get thrown a curveball, all of a sudden now there's like, there, it's, there's no pattern. They're, they're random, right? And it's like, no, it's like there's a method to their madness. You just have to understand what's driving it, right? And it's yeah. like, and it's all going back to what you and I have talked about every time we've ever talked. It's like the, the why question, like the, why are they doing what they're doing? Right. Yeah. If you just, and you might get it wrong a hundred times, but like, if you're not asking that question, you got no shot, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's the, I, that's, what's exciting to, to me about going to Kansas and just doing something different is way out of my comfort zone, man. Like I specifically tried to hunt more from the ground the past two years, just to kind of almost practice to get ready, but still it's going to be, you know, when Chad was out there, he's like, it's just like another planet. He's like some of these ditches or, you know, these, these draws, he's like, he was thinking like normal size draws. He's like, man, some of these things are like a 20 foot drop. Yep. <laughs> he was just like, he's like almost like, you know, he's like not quite as nasty. He was like, but like blow down and just bullshit inside of it. He's like, where it's almost like being in the West, like, you know, elk hunting almost not as drastic. Right. But he's like to a smaller scale, but similar. You know, yep. he's like where it's just sheer and there's just like a bunch of crap in there. And you're just like, how does anything get through there? You know, he's like, but that's, that's where they're at. He's like, but then how do you hunt it? Yeah. You know, well, that's, that's the most difficult part. I mean, you see the people who really excel at that, those, those areas, they're Western hunters, right. you know, I mean, they, they're really good at, at reading those situations. And it's, that's, what's hard about, you know, us being like a traditional whitetail hunters in, in so many aspects is like when you have such limited and, and shitty ambush <laughs> options, <laughs> it's tough, man. But yeah, it's, a uh, you know, I'll never forget, uh, a buddy and I went out to South Dakota one time, uh, primarily to hunt mule deer and we were hunting the grassland stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, same, same kind of situation you're talking about, you know, and, you know, there were whitetails out there, but we didn't really, we, you know, we were kind of focused on mule deer and we started glassing like the first morning we got out there. And saw some saw some mule deer. My buddy screwed up a stock, and we bumped like 150, like mid 150s whitetail in nothing, like, like compared to what we're used to. Right. And that deer ran into one of those draws that you're talking about, and we're just like, well, he's out of our life. But it was cool to see because he was a toad on public land. Right. And we jumped that goddamn thing twice down there, going <laughs> after other mule. He just ran down the draw and bedded down, and had the wind in his favor, and we didn't like. In our heads, we're like, that deer is, he doesn't exist for us anymore. And right. it, that's what he had to use. And he used it well, but he was competing against two idiots, didn't know any better. And <laughs> you, you, like, you see something like that and you go, holy cow. Like, if you if you had that experience, like, you knew that that was possible. Like, 
you watch that deer run in there and he, you don't see him come out. Like he's still in there. Right, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like make a plan instead of just blundering through there. But it's, it's hard when you get in those environments. I mean, it's why so many people, I mean, I shouldn't say it's one of the reasons why people struggle with elk hunting. Like if you come from the East and you go elk hunting, that is a wild new experience. Yeah. 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 I remember whenever the, the, when I made my trip out West, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before. And it was actually a huge learning experience for me just from like, I took a lot from that trip back to like my whitetail hunting. Right. Um, it was just, yeah, it was, it was rugged. It was tough. We were able to get on some bulls here and there, you know, um, playing the thermals was like, that was like a, a class in playing thermals. You know, I, fortunately I was with a buddy of mine who is, he's from Montana. Um, and he's, he's a savage. He's one of those dudes that just like, he kills an elk every year, you know, and usually a good one on public land. He's just one of those people that just, you, you meet people in your life that you're like, that dude's a born killer. You know, it yep. just doesn't matter what it is. He's going to kill it, you know? And that's just how he is, you know? Um, and so I was actually hunting with him and he, he's great at calling. So he was calling for me and stuff like that. And he was trying to help me, you know, get on a bull. And so he was kind of teaching me as we were kind of going along. And that was like a master's class in learning how to use thermals because that was just like the hundred percent, the game out there. It's like, if you can't do that, like you pretty much stand no chance <laughs> like at yeah. all. And, and it's not easy. No, it's not. I mean, it's like, you want to talk about people talk about fickle wind in the East to, to deer hunt, like in hill country and stuff like that. It's like, it's Nope. It, yeah, it doesn't even compare. I mean, it shifts at different elevations. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's like, it's just, yeah, it's, and, it's ridiculous. And you're just dealing with wild temperature swings that are going to happen. Oh, you know, 100%. like, you, you, you know, you get like, you know, it, it, it happens in the whitetail woods, but it doesn't happen the same way. Like you're not like very rarely does it cool off so fast in the whitetail woods that the wind rushes downhill or rarely does it heat up, you know, right, right at the certain time in the morning where all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, it's just blowing straight, you know, like. But out in the mountains, you're sitting there at, you know, nine, ten o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden you just hear it coming like a freight train. And you're like, <laughs> if you're yeah. if you're not used to that, like that's just. You know, if you're sitting on some some bedded elk or something, you're like, oh, God, like it saved so many animals. Yeah. So what uh, going back to going back to Kansas, like if you were me, right, and you got this tag and you're going to an area that doesn't, you know, not a lot of trees. Right. How would how would Tony Tony Peterson tackle that? Like, how would he what would be like the first thing you would first thing you would do when you got there? I'd go the second week of October. I knew you were going to say that actually. <laughs> I would, I would go when I felt like I could find a big concentration of deer that would be predictable and other people wouldn't be out there trying to decoy them and run them down <laughs> during the rut. Yeah. I, 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 as soon as I asked the question, I was like, I know exactly how he's going to answer this. Cause I, I mean, I know that's like one of the things that you do really well and you do it purposefully is when you take your travel trips often, it's like you usually are trying to time it to when other people aren't going to be there. So it's not the popular time to be there. Right. And I think some people get scared off by it because they think in their mind, right. If you think October, right. Whitetail hunting, you're thinking like bed hunting. Right. And that's a isolating game to play, you know, but if you do it in a certain way, so maybe let's do this. Like, I guess explain to me how, how you would tackle that then. Cause I think a lot of people think exactly what I just said, which is like, man, if you're hunting October, white tails, like you're hunting beds. Right. But 
explain like, but I know like we've talked about this before and your feelings about bed hunting where it's, it's legit. And there's are a handful of people who can do it and do it really well. Right. And they're kind of the unicorns. Right. But for us mere mortals, hunting a singular bed, a deer in a singular bed is, you know, oftentimes a, a, a fool's game. But I think a lot of people now kind of equate that early October with exclusively bed hunting almost. Right. And so bust the myth, I guess. Like, so how, so whenever you're going out there early October, how would you, how would you hunt them? Not necessarily bed, bed hunting them. So, I mean, this is what this, this bed hunting situation reminds me of is I've, I've fished tournaments with people who are like, I'm a power fisherman. I only flip, I only throw, you know, spinner baits or whatever. And I'm like, well, what if they're on a finesse bite? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, can you throw a Senko? Like, why, why wouldn't you have this? Or why would you right. go into this and say, I'm only flipping. This is, this is the, this is the only way, unless you like really believe that's how it's going to get one. Like if you, if you're like, I've got all the tools, but the, you know, the big girls are going to be shallow and this is what they're going to eat. Okay. If that, if they show you that great, but like to, to say there's a certain time of year where like this, this bed hunting style, that's, that's the option. Mm-hmm. Like those deer are going to be eating somewhere like they're going to be traveling somewhere they're going to be drinking somewhere in october they're going to be laying down signs somewhere even if it's this first or second week mm-hmm. and for me like i know that like i, I know they're going to do that in pennsylvania they're going to do it in michigan they're going to do it mm-hmm. in wherever and i would rather just work the deer on those terms like knowing like okay maybe you do have to bed hunt them but maybe they're going to give you something else you can work with mm-hmm. like probably they will but I don't want to deal with, you know, 10 times the hunting pressure in, in the rut where I might have that perceived advantage of the, you know, bucks losing their minds and covering a ton of ground versus these deer not covering as much ground, not being crazy out of their mind with the rut, but probably patternable, probably visible morning and evening, and probably stuck to a very, a location they really like. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, I'm kind of, God, I don't know. I know, like, I, I have made this argument a billion times. I know people don't believe it or they, like, I'm not getting through because everybody's still hunting the rut, which is okay. Right. right. But I just think, I think that they, they're out there and they give you a chance every day. I right. really do. And I think it gets a lot harder when your competition goes up. Like, that's a simple, stupid thing to say. But if I can, if I can just work against the deer versus working against a bunch of people, I'll take that. Right. And so if you, if you have that, if you have that opportunity, even on public land where they they get more pressure generally, like you get into Kansas and you're in a place where nobody's really messing with them and you're way closer to the beginning of the season when they, you know, like they've just had less pressure. Mm-hmm. I would just be confident in a place where they're visible, where you're going to get on them and get something to work. Like right. you're going to, you're going to find some kind of browse pattern or you're going to find something, but a cattle tank or something that's like, yep. This, right. He went in there, he walked out, you don't, maybe you don't need to know where he beds. Maybe you see right where he beds, but they're going to be visible and you might not have a bunch of other people to compete with. Right. Yeah. I think that's, it's just, you've, you've mentioned this a couple times when, when we've talked <laughs> and every time I'm always like, damn it, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take one of these trips in, in October and kind of, and, and, and play this game. And I actually think Kansas would be one of the best spots to possibly do it. Right. Yeah. Couple couple reasons. One, you can see a long ways, right? And so if you can get to a place where you can do some glassing, 
you can almost hunt it almost like a pseudo Western hunt where you can glass kind of figure out, lay back for a day and just glass the entire day and figure out what they're doing before you blow something up. Right. And then, and then go kind of, kind of make your move. I think earlier too, right. Not only are you going to be, have less people because it's not the rut, but if you're going, you know, say you're going Saturday to Saturday, or if I'm going out for two weeks, it's like, man, I'm going to have 10 days where there isn't going to be anybody out. Right. Cause I'm going to be there in the middle of the week, Monday through Friday hunting outside of the rut. When only people that are going to really going to be there are going to be the locals who are going to hunt their Saturday Sundays. Right. Yeah. And so you basically have the run of the state for, for 10 days essentially, or the, at least the zones that you have drawn for. And then the other part I like about it, and I'm now starting to convince myself a little bit that maybe I need to be going the second week of October is it almost forces you again, this is either glassing, but I'm going to say scout scouting midday. I think a lot of people, I'm not necessarily guilty of this because I'm willing to get down and move and scout, right? I don't have a problem with that, but I think a lot of people, especially during the rut, they're like, Oh, I'm hunting the rut in Kansas or Iowa or Ohio or whatever destination state that they've picked for that year. And it's like, I'm going to sit in this tree come hell or high water for 10 days, because if I do, something will come by. And when reality is that they should be getting down and scouting and figure out where the deer are at. Right. And so because you're in October and that midday movement that, you know, 10 to two movement or whatever, isn't going to really be in play, then you don't feel obligated to sit in the tree all day or, you know, in wherever your setup is, whether it's on the ground or whatever. And you feel a little bit more comfortable about get, getting out and moving and doing some scouting or doing some glassing. Cause you don't feel like you're wasting a prime opportunity for a yep. buck to come walking by. Right. Dude, absolutely. And, and you don't, you don't fall into, you're already going into it with a different expectation as far as deer movement. Right. Mm-hmm. So you don't go into it and you, you know how it is when you hunt the rut, like the rut is, is rough sometimes, man. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not just a guarantee that you're going to be covered in deer and it, it, it works against us in that way. Cause we go in with such high expectations yeah. that when you don't get it right, or it's just not on right where you were at, that's really hard to stomach. Like you start the second guessing comes in, but I think like what, what you said that makes like that really, really gives you the opportunity is the time. Mm-hmm. If you, if you say I've got 10 days to hunt a good place, Holy cow. Like you don't have to rush anything. And like you said, yeah. you got, a four hour window each day where you can just go scout or you could burn a whole day scouting or two days scouting that you, you have the opportunity there to just like work on something and let it breathe. You know, like mm-hmm. you don't have to rush it. You see that deer it, doing something or you, you get clued into it a little bit. Like you've got time to sit back and go, okay, what is this really? How does it work for me? Right. That matters. Right No, totally. Cause I mean, in the rut, it's like there, you don't really get that luxury, right. For a bunch of reasons. One biology, Right. It is dictating that they're not going to stick around real long when you do see them in, in a lot of cases. And two, to your point, <clears throat> if even if you do have a deer that you think you know what he might do, chances are there's someone who thinks it, too, because he's probably someone else has probably also seen him. Right. Yep. And so now you're playing that game of like, can I get him before the next guy sees him or bumps him or whatever, whatever the case is. So, man, I don't know, dude, I'm just, <laughs> I'm really I'm really pondering now that October time frame because it's like the weather's a little nicer too, you know what I mean? Like maybe a little bit more predictable. I'm just not, I don't know. We might actually have to do that anyway. Cause I think Chad actually, that's who I'm going with my, my buddy Chad. I think he actually has a wedding in November that he has to go to. 
Um, and I'm like, I don't know who you're friends with. It's getting married in November, but they should be <laughs> off the friends list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. With, that's no, no good. Yeah. With a quickness. But, uh, so anyway, shifting a hard transition here, man, I want to ask you, you know, this, we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but I kind of pick one thing every year that I want to get that I want to get better at. And then I try to use like the postseason scouting and preseason scouting and stuff like that. Or, you know, sometimes it's shooting or whatever, but I usually try to pick a thing and make a, an effort, you know, at that one thing to get exponentially better during the course of that, that, that season or whatever this year for me, it truthfully lame answer has been just to get my shoulder, right. That's been like my focus is trying to get, uh, have a, a torn labrum in my left shoulder that I'm avoiding surgery but I'm doing a lot of physical therapy, you know, trying to get, and it's like, I've been able to, I've been back shooting for probably three weeks now, low reps, but still back shooting. So mm-hmm. that's the thing that I'm really focused on this year. So it's not really even hunting related per se, but it's going to be a reason as to whether or not I'm able to hunt, you know, essentially. Yep. So I'm curious for you, man, is there anything this year? Do you, do you subscribe to that philosophy? Do you try to pick something every year to get better at, or, you know, or is there, does it just kind of pop up and you're like, Oh, this, this year I'm going to tackle this thing. Um, man, I'm going to give you a really muddy answer on this one. Yes and no. So like one of back when I was chasing that tournament fishing dream, I would pick something like Carolina rigging. And I'm like, this summer I'm, I'm doing this in a bunch of different, I'm like, I just want to get better. Like a lot of times it was some kind of technique that's really popular down South and we don't use it up North a whole lot, but Mm -hmm. you just look and you're like, they're these bass are bass like right right. you know they're catching them doing this down there i'm gonna figure this out and i loved that like forcing myself to just be like get better at this technique like you're you're you don't even under really understand it and hunting i do that sometimes like Mm -hmm. but now now a lot of times it's like just the new state or the new like just Mm -hmm. forcing myself don't go back to that place go somewhere new let's Mm -hmm. find something new because i i feel like I don't know. I kind of just need to anyway. Like I just enjoy that so much, but yeah. I, it also puts me in a situation where you like, okay, you got to start over. Like I, I don't, I'm not, I don't reach out for help from people or anything. Like I kind of, mm-hmm. I really kind of like to go in just like blind and right. just be like, what, what I know about this through scouting is what I know. And then you get there and you know, you're always got a lot of it wrong and you got to figure it out on the fly. And I just, I love that aspect of it. So it's not necessarily like I'm going to, you know, become a badass still hunter this year or something like, or kill one from the ground or, you know, because I'm, I might do any of that at any given time just cause the situation dictates, but it's like putting myself in those places. And really this year I got, I got a new puppy coming. And so I kind of, I kind of out of necessity have scaled back my fall plans a little bit. And because of my new gig, I've a couple of my buck tags are like spoken for, like I have mm. to, I have to hunt certain States at certain times. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have this weird anxiety going on because I don't have that much planned deer wise. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm going to hunt deer a lot. So I'm like, I don't have a lot going on as far as like, I'll be here in this state at this days. I got, I got a couple States lined up. I shouldn't say that, but right. I don't have what I usually do. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, am I going to, am I really going to spend all this time with this puppy or am I going to peel off and go to this new state or what am I going to do? Or am I going to just take this and try to get over to Wisconsin with my little girls as much as possible and try to get them deer, which is like a crazy challenge in it. <laughs> like, yeah, man, I can't even imagine. You yeah. know, so I, I'm like really long story long. 
I don't have like one goal this year where I'm like, that's, I gotta try to accomplish this. Right. I got a whole bunch of weird little mini ones where I'm like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into this or lean into that and just see where it goes. Right. So some of these places, so these planned, planned hunts that you have, are they, I mean, are you going to, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. Are they going to be known places that you've been before? Or are you going to be going in blind to some of these places and kind of freestyling the freestyling some of, some of these trips? You know, I'm always kind of curious how people tackle that because I know for me, you know, I have the bandwidth to kind of know a couple things well, you know, in, in a given year. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, for example, it's like if I'm going to Ohio, you know, there's two places that I've I've hunted in the past that like I really like and I kind of know, and so I can kind of go into those places both without a whole lot of prep. And kind of know what I'm getting into, you know, Um, you know, PA, similar kind of situation, even some of the places that I hunt that are close to me. It's like, I may not know a lot about them, but I know enough about the area that I can kind of, kind of get by Missouri. I got a couple places now like that to where it's like, eh, I freelanced them before I can probably go and jump on any one of those pieces and kind of have some, some firmish footing. Right. So I'm just curious, like, are there. Is that what you're running into or are you kind of going into any of these places where it's like, this is new and we're just going to kind of wing it and figure it out as we go um little of both i've got i've got some places i'm going to go back to and that i've hunted either specific spots or kind of regions i mean Mm -hmm. i have i have some new places i'm going to hunt this year that they're actually private um and so i'm kind of feeling like i don't have the new new public to obsess over Mm -hmm. and that's what i feel like that's what's hanging over my head right now like i don't I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just not going to do it this year. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of the puppy. I'm going to take my girls out and I can just feel it like weighing on me. Like just find something for a long weekend at some point, go somewhere new. Right. I don't know where it's, I, so I, I would say like, I'm like 87% of the way there. I just don't know where it's going to be. Right. Hey man, the Poconos, you know, you got, I got a it camper. You can there. Sleep. I can tell you where it won't be. <laughs> I got a camper you can sleep in and everything, man. I'll take care of you. It'd be all good. <laughs> man, I, you know, I would love to, this, and this is the truth. There are so many places I would love to hunt like that just to see them. Yeah. Just to be, you know, cause I've never been there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, this is one of the reasons I'm like envious of the hunting public guys, like their life space right now. Yeah. They can just go do that stuff. Like when you're, when you're 40 years old and you got little kids, like, <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, you know, I hear you, man. Yeah, it's like the, we were talking about earlier in the podcast. It's just like trying to find a bandwidth to get away to go scout. It's like you kind of have to double up on on things, you know what I yeah. mean, where it's like because you have a limited opportunity. And that's the one thing, you know, I've just gotten good with over the years is, you know, a lot of the times, even if I do get the opportunity to scout somewhere new, it's literally going to be two days. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's I'm if I'm lucky, I'll get three before I actually have to go hunt it, you know. Yeah. Cause the piece up North, you know, I've been there three times now looking at the calendar. I'm like, I don't know when I'm, when I would find another weekend to get, to get back, you know, yeah. realistically, could I squeeze one in? Mm, probably. Is it going to be effective? Probably not. You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's kind of what you have to kind of balance. Right. Cause at this point it's greened up. I'm not going to learn anything from the terrain at this point or finding there. They don't make big scrapes there to begin with. So finding them now are, is almost impossible, you know? Yep. And so it's really, if I want to go up and maybe check a couple cameras and glass that cut, I mean, that would be it. You know what I mean? And so I think people, I love scouting. 
I think sometimes, tell me if you feel differently about this. I feel like sometimes people are too, this is going to sound really stupid for someone who's into whitetail hunting, are almost too dependent on it, if that, if that makes any sense. Like, elaborate on that. So, like, I think over the past several years, I've gotten good with less information in that I'm okay. I'm fine to go do the hunt without having a bunch of days on a piece to kind of learn it or whatever. And I think some of that, I think has helped me actually stay truer to the hunt and actually just read the sign and understand what's going on at that time. Right. Um, Where I think some, sometimes I look, I think the more, you know, the better off you are, but I think some people get so obsessed with the scouting component of it. Right. To where it's like you're really kind of overdoing it a little bit. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like you're you're reaching a point of diminishing returns, I guess yep. I should say, like where the amount of time you're spending. Yeah, you're still learning more. But like now your your intel went up half a percent and you spent two days where three months ago when you spent two days, you gained 50 percent of your knowledge. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's like. And so I kind of think of it in in that way to, and maybe that's some somewhat how I justify like going into some places blind and just like winging it, you know what I mean, and like yeah. figuring it out. Um, but I do sometimes feel like you know even places here around home, it's like I started trying to stay away from them and not scouting them as much because I actually hunt better if I know a little less. Yeah. And it was an well, observation a buddy of mine, Greg Litzinger, made because he was like, dude, he's like, you go out of state, he's like, you don't know shit for shit when you hit some of these places, he's like, and you'll text me in two days. And you're like, yeah, man, had three encounters today. And he's yep. like, and I'm like, you know, he's like, and in Pennsylvania, he's like, the, you're playing okie doke with this one buck for like two months. You know what I mean? He's like, yep. and he just keeps slipping you. He's like, and I think it's because you're getting, you're getting married to the idea of killing him in a place and not married to the idea of just finding where you want to, where you need to kill him at. Yeah. Dude. I, I, I think that you're so on to something there. And I think, I think we can really get into trouble thinking we know a lot of right? like when we do know a lot about a spot, like when you've got a lot of memories mm-hmm. to work off of, it gets, it can get ugly in a hurry. And when yeah. you show up fresh, you're just like, I'm working with whatever I'm, I'm picking up right now. And whatever yeah. you're picking up right now is probably actionable right now. You're not right. thinking like three years ago, this buck that came through this clear cut on October 27th, like that doesn't mean anything now probably right and it's a uh, i don't know it's it i i kind of think well first off i think it's crazy that we're even talking about you could scout too much because it wasn't that long ago where like you'd be like begging people to right. go out scout. like 365 this, man 365 yeah, guerrilla warfare <laughs> attitude towards scouting that there is now you know and i don't think i think there's just uh there's an experience level that comes with wh- wherever you're scouting. Like if you, it's public, private, like you, you put in a certain amount of time scouting, you put it in a certain amount of time hanging in trees. Like you, you get to a, a comfort level point where it's maybe not necessary to go out all the time, but I think you got to get there. Like, I don't, I think great hunters exist because of that love of scouting at one point of their life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I, th- I don't think they're, I don't think you can, I don't think one exists without the other. Let me put it right. that way. But right. I think you can get to a, a point where you can overdo it or you can buy into the idea that you have to be out there all the time and you aren't doing yourself any favors. And, right. you know, that's dangerous, too. Like, it, yeah, I think I think you just got to understand, like, I got to get comfortable with w- where am I at with this? And then 
when you do go out of state, like you're talking about, when you're at a certain level, you go in with a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's right. that like, you know, you hit something there when you're like, I can go blind to X, Y, or Z state and probably get on. I might not kill something, but I'm going to get on right. something workable in a short period of time. That that's not because of a lack of scout or like that. Like you already did the work to get there. Right. A bunch of other parts of your life. And it just happens to play really well into what you're doing now, but you probably wouldn't be confident to do that. You wouldn't be an over the road killer if you didn't kind of have that history already, you know, does that make sense? No, it totally does. And I, and I do think it's somewhat parcel dependent as well. You know what I mean? I think like, for example, peace in the Poconos, like I would probably never freelance hunt that because you could just wander for weeks up there and not find anything. Right. So I think there is a piece of like understanding what's there that you have to kind of, kind of go through. I think some of the pieces I'll just use me as an example, some of the stuff that's around here, I didn't even post season scout any of it, you know, cause I was like, yeah, I, I know what they did. I know where the sign had been previously this past year. I kind of know how the deer are using the terrain there. I know where the pressure's at. So I'll go hang some cameras and then I'll go in in October and start to hunt it. And I'll, and I'll figure out how it has or has not changed, you know, between last year and this year, you know? Um, and that is a much that I feel better about that because then what I do is I use that time. I would typically spend doing that going to explore new places, you know what I mean? And, and learn those areas. Right. And so that's, maybe that's a better way for me to frame it. It's not that scouting it's diminishing returns. I think scouting the same piece over and over and over again, thinking you're going to find something brand new every time or that something's going to be different and it does happen. Right. But I would say you're probably better off finding other places to scout yep. that give you another perspective, a fresh look, and maybe even turn into another place that you can potentially hunt. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I did this year, you know, on this one piece that I lost the deer, didn't know where he transitioned to, found some hammer scrapes, you know, and some, some rubs actually found a bed, you know, which I never do. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and I think I figured out where he went to. Right. And so instead of going and scouting his old haunts that I found that I knew he was in, in like October and late September, I just went to a different area that I'd never been to before and was like, well, this would be where I would go, you know, and just, and I scouted that part and figured that part out. Right. But the truth be told is like, I'll probably never go back in there and scout again. Like, you know, I'll hunt it. If I don't hunt it for a year or two, I'll go scout it again. But if I hunt it, I probably won't scout it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, it does. And I, I think that there's, there's kind of like an undersold, maybe an understated aspect of scouting that we don't talk about a lot is, you know, we look at it like you got to get in there. You got to find the scrapes. You got to find the rubs. You got to find that bed trails, what like the sign. But there's also just like a familiarity with the terrain, mm-hmm. right? Like, and once you get like that's understanding the terrain is a huge component of being a good deer hunter yeah. in a in a specific spot, and and it translates well to other spots too. But we don't, you know, like you you can know a spot really well. Like eventually you can walk in enough and go, I know where every bench is and every <laughs> low right. spot. Like you can you can finish that part just about. So right. then it's like okay, there, there might be a refresher course you need somewhere in there on some new mast or some, maybe something changed, but right. you're, you know, when you're in a new place, like when you think about when you go to Kansas or you think of, you go to a new state, so much of what you're doing is, yeah, you're looking for sign, but you're also just like, I want to learn the terrain. Like I want right. to know 
where's where's the low spots where's the high spots where's the crossings like i want to just see what is this what does this look like as far as how deer will walk across it right and that's a, a lot of times one of the biggest things that i want to see is you know there's just so much that's not necessarily on a map because it might not be the most recent right and that's a lot of what, what i've run into whenever i've gone north to scout is like I'm looking and like the cuts, like the map that's there is not the most recent. So there's cuts that exist that I don't know about. Right. And that's where having a buddy up there actually came in really handy and critical because he was like, Oh, there's a cut over here. There's a cut over here. There's a cut over here, but the maps just haven't been updated, you know? And so yep. it's like, and not just that, but it's then like, what are some of those internal like skitter roads and stuff like that, that don't show on a map. Right. It's like, well, how do you, they piece together and how do you get from one place to the next and stuff like that and try to use them for, you know, slick access and stuff like that. And that to me is all the things that are like super, super worthwhile to figure out for sure. You know, especially if it's a new, a new area, but, but going back to saying, like, I think it's parcel dependent. It's like, I think big woods is much more like that. Cause I know, you know, a, a guy I had on Nathan killing, um, Virginia kills hammer deer in the mountains of Virginia, like every year, mature deer. And he targets deer in the mountains, which is like, blows my mind right he's hunting appalachia or appalachia let me say it correctly and uh <laughs> um and he's killing like four to six year old deer and targeting like two to three deer a year and killing one of them you know and That's it's like awesome. and, and it's just like in in big woods like just places where you'd be like you can't target deer in that area and he does but he scouts his ass off and a lot of what he's looking for, and this was interesting, something I want to start to adopt, and I'd love to hear if you've ever used this before, but he scouts a lot because he's actually looking for how the food's changing there because food's driving everything there, like where, where acorns at and where browse is at, like where acorns are going to drop. Like he needs to know that because that's going to be where it's kind of what we we're talking about. They exist in pockets in those areas. And if you're not in the pocket, you got no shot, you know, and so yeah. you have to know where that where that food is. But the one thing that he does that I thought was interesting, like, you know, conventional wisdom would say, you know, you find a big rub or scraper or a rub line or whatever. It's like a lot of people are going to hunt that, especially if it's hammer, right? Big sign, right? But he actually hunts. He never hunts the actual sign. He always hunts off the sign somewhere. Like he's never on it, right? And so typically whenever I'm hunting a scrape, we use that as an example if it's a primary scrape and I'm pretty confident it's a primary scraper, I'm going to hunt that scrape. Right. You know, what he was basically saying was, is he was like, I'm going to hunt off of that and figure out how he's kind of getting, getting to and from and what other terrain feature he might use. He's like, for a couple of reasons, he's like, one, he's like, someone else probably saw that sign at some point and may also be hunting that. He's like, so that deer might have, have an aversion to heading directly to that, to that particular, you know, scrape or, you know, rub line or whatever the case is. And they're a very specific kind of use case for deer as like a communication hub. And they don't necessarily necessarily always need to be there to know what's going on. And so he very rarely will hunt. And he said he's missed out on killing too many deer earlier in his life by hunting the sign that when he started hunting off of it is actually when he started having more encounters and just better overall, better overall success. Seemed very counterintuitive to me, but after I thought about it, I was like, it totally makes sense. I think it'd be really hard for me to adopt because you just want to go to that sign. <laughs> you know, well, he's he's just he's using the sign as one data point. Know, it's one part of the puzzle, you know, like yeah. it's one one clue, but he's not he's not ending his search there. Right. Right. You know, and it, that's kind of what we're like, you know, when you when like when you talk about hunting scrapes, like it it makes me nervous to even think about that because I don't hunt scrapes. 
no. very often. I use them as like, okay, there's there's a reason this is here. Like, right. where are they? You know, it's kind of the same thing. Like the the rub line thing. Like those those are awesome clues. Like that mm-hmm. might be where you kill him, or it just might give you something to learn about where he likes to go. You know, right. like they it can do both. And yeah. we we kind of look at it like the end is just find that awesome dished out scrape with the you know licking right. branch hanging over it, sit twenty yards downwind, wait for him to come in. Like, well, right. You know, a lot Doesn't of people only... have sat and watched squirrels doing that. You know, oh, right, right, yeah, it, yeah. And I think you know, I think the, I think you have to almost qualify that uh, that sign as well, right? Because it's like I don't a regular scrape probably wouldn't sit, but if you get into that one where it's like, man, you're adjacent to bedding, it's in cover there's five or six scrapes within like a 10 yard radius. It's like, all right, like they're spending a, a lot of like you're in hub central, right? Yeah. You're, you, you know, so to me, that's the one that I would probably hunt, you know, yeah. um, the other but ones, to, but hold on ahead. a second though. You're not hunting. I mean, yes, you're hunting a scrape, but you're hunting a spot that's given you multiple things. Yes. You know what I mean? And like, I think yep. this is, this is one of the messages like we need to get out there more is like, if we talk about scrape hunting, like it's, we're, we're talking about it kind of differently than we'd look at it actually in person. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you'd get in there and you'd go, Whoa, I like that. But right. I also like the fact that it, look, I can see this trail coming in here and this trail coming here. And then the reason this community scrape is here is because this whole, you know, system funnels right down to here. Right. And there's, you know, you got multiple things working for you. Yeah. And that's different. Like you said, than if you were just walking through the woods and you see a scrape and you're like, Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't get the spidey senses tingling. Cause it's not the spot that offers everything. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Cause I did, a I was talking with, uh, some folks from Maine that, uh, that hunt the big woods up there and they actually are very discerning when it comes to scrapes, like, like to the point of like things that are just like frustration pawing, right. A lot of people around, I think these areas, right. are just like typical whitetail, uh, ranges, would look at those as being would as, as being scrapes. Right. But they're discerning like what a scrape is a community scrape, you know, what a, 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 a frustration pine by like a two year old buck that can't find a, can't find a doe or whatever. Right. <laughs> like they make them for all these different reasons. And it's like, I think that's the, you know, important thing for people to kind of think about and realize with scrapes is that they, they have a lot of different purposes and they're made for a lot of different reasons. Right. And they're not all created equal. And you have to, especially if you're going to sit one, like you got to be sure it's the one that they're going to tend frequently. And they're going to do it in daylight. Cause like this, the statistics will tell you 80% of that happens at night. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, unless you have some trail camera data saying that they're hitting it in daylight and, and stuff like that, like you're probably better off hunting off that sign. Right. But if you have multiple things converging where it's like, Oh, there's a doe bedding area here and there's a rub over here and there's a primary scrape area here and there's two trails connecting it. And man, when the, when the thermal start to drop in the evening, it's going to pull all right here. It's like, well, bingo. Like that's the reason that it's there. You know what I mean? It's like, so it just becomes the nail in the coffin and not like the, the only the nail. Big time. You know? Yeah. I mean, dude, I, I sat one time I was in hunting up in Northern or Northern Minnesota and I had two bucks coming through the woods and it was kind of on this, I don't know, just, it was just a flat, like I could see him coming a long ways. One was a little guy. One was big enough where I was going to shoot him if he came in. And the bigger one, he was like every 20, 30 yards, he'd stop and make a scrape. 
Hmm. You know, and you could just watch him. Like I had this like light bulb moment where I'm like, that dude's never going back to those scrapes. Like he's just making (laughs) scrapes for the hell of it. Like, you know, like when you watch kids do stuff, you're like, sometimes they just they're they're not thinking. They're just like do stuff. You know, that buck was just walking along. And like it kind of just made me realize, like, some of this doesn't matter. You know, like if you watch bucks go through, sometimes they'll make a rub somewhere and you're just like, he just he just did that. like there was no plan there. Like this isn't tied to he any. Could have gotten in an argument with his mom before he left. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, like <laughs> I want to go out there and eat, but it's too light out yet, so I'm gonna tear up this sapling. But it might not mean anything, you know. Right. Yeah. And so it's it's really a- about those like like how many boxes does this check? Like and right. you know how it is. And it, like when you're talking about those guys up in Maine, you think about if you were just like, I'm going to go hunt scrapes because it's October 10th, which might be a great plan. Right. Right. But if you, if you showed up in Nebraska and you were like, I'm going to do that. It's like, which one there's 5,000 of them in every woodlot. Right. You know what I mean? So like, which one, which one is really going to give you something to work with? There has to be something more going on. Right. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be, it's got to be a piece of the puzzle to your earlier point, right? That kind of like all, all roads are, are, are leading to here. I actually had that happen today while I was out hanging trail cameras. There was an area that I'd, I hunted a couple times last year. It was actually where that big deer I had transitioned where I lost him from. That's, you know, I actually got him on a, uh, on a community scrape in that area. And so I was going in, there's two spots that I have to hang cameras in there and both kind of scrape areas. But I just decided to walk, like continue walking down the edge of this, like, this runoff that runs down through this, this piece. And as I kept kind of going, I saw the big community script. I had a camera on last year and I was like, all right, and I was like, I'll probably double back here after I hang that other one and probably hang another camera here. I was like, well, let me just see what else is down this way. I just kind of kept walking along this stream and it was just like, I don't know. I probably got hundred yards from that community scrape. And it was like, there's a scrape, 10 more yards. There's another scrape, 10 more yards. There's another scrape. Right. And there was just like, there was a bunch of them like down this little kind of corridor or whatever. But to your point, it's like, I kind of looked at them and I kind of was surveying, you know, the land around me and I was looking at my map and like, are they going to really use this or, or not? You know, cause all the action I had seen previously was going like East and West and this was running North and South. Right. And so I was like, are they actually going to use this? Like what is down here? That's like the priority for them to, to, to be down here. And once I walked a little further, it's like, it all kind of opened up. Right. And so I was like, all right. I felt like those were just kind of, they weren't very big, you know, and like in my mind, I'm like, okay, these are just, they were probably worked at a very specific time in, in probably at the end of the season, because I can still see them. Right. I was like, this is not their destination area, right? There's no reason for this to be their destination area. Like the cut is over here and there's a cut over here. And this is like actually going down in between them and the, and the one community scrape, is really kind of off the edge of that one cut. And then the other one is on the back side of it. I was like, I feel like those are the two like priority kind of primary pieces. And those other scripts that were down lower, are the ones that are probably the most easily accessible from private as well. And then after I walked down just a little bit further tree stand. Right. And so then all of a sudden it became like, okay, these are now null and void, right? Like yep. they're, they're no longer in play. My spidey senses told me that they weren't the right ones. And then I just confirmed that there's going to be people in here right near these. And that's why that, stand is there. Right. Yep. And so it was, it's interesting that we're talking about that now because I just literally had that happen to me today. And for a second I was like, <laughs> Oh man, there's five in a row. You know, yep. it's like, 
it's like playing, you know, some type of card game. I get five in a row and I get excited. Then I saw everything else that was going on around it. And I was like, probably not the priority plot priority spot. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks, but it happens constantly. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it feels like when you, when you talk about something like that, that's a spot where you might be able to hunt it, but you'd have to talk yourself into it. Yeah. And if you have to talk yourself into hunting a spot, it sucks. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. If you have to be like, I should probably just try this and set here. Like you're probably settling, you know? Totally. Well, it, man, it's almost like you're in my head, dude, <laughs> because I literally, as I was standing there looking at it, I was like, I would hunt this if like everything else sucked and there was like, in <laughs> in like the wind was wrong for everything else, you know? And, the, or yep. it was too early to go into like a different spot or whatever. I was like, I would throw a Hail Mary at this, like, opening weekend you know what i mean i was like yep. just to, just to see you know but i was like anything otherwise i was like probably not probably not worth it but yeah well cool man i've, I've kept you here for a, an hour and a half i want to be sensitive to your time if uh, <laughs> uh want to make sure you got time to uh to spend some time with the family i did have one other question for you though if you have if you have a second go ahead buddy so i've been so that was a false ending for everyone who's listening. That wasn't the ending. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, kids. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. We're going to keep going. Um, so you're getting a new dog, a new pup, yep. right? I got my, my old dog. He's not old. He's like four. Just turned four. Um, or he'll turn. No, he just turned four. Um, starting to work him on learning how to find sheds. And I think he's doing okay, but I have nothing to judge it against. He finds him in the yard fine. You know, I throw him. At first, I started with him just letting him play with it in the house, right? So you kind of get used to it. And then I took him outside because he's, he's a black lab. The dude, he's smart. I trained him how to go get my paper in three minutes, like, and fetches the paper. He, will, he, he, he does what he's supposed to do. He'll go retrieve anything you throw, right? Yep. So then I started throwing the shed in the backyard, letting him see it, make, putting him on a stay making him stay for a couple seconds. Wouldn't just let him dart after and then say, go find a shed. He would go and find it. And earlier whenever I'd play with him with a ball or whatever, he really didn't want to use his nose a whole lot. And so the shed now, all of a sudden he started using his nose, which was really cool. I love watching a dog work, you know, and just, it was cool to watch him start kind of trying to sniff it out. Right. So the grass was short. Cause I just mowed. So he could kind of see it too. So he could, he was picking up the shape a little bit and stuff like that. And then the grass got a little taller and I did that purposefully. So I could throw the shed and then it, it would kind of lay in the grass a little bit or underneath a bush or whatever. And he'd have to sniff it out. And he was doing that. And then I'd put him in the sunroom and I would go out myself and I would hide it, you know, and then I'd tell him to go find the shed. That would take him a little longer. And sometimes I'd have to like walk toward it and let him get downwind of it, you know, and then he would, he would find that. So I took him scouting there like two, three weeks ago, whatever it was. And I just wanted to see what he would do, you know, and I took a shed with me. So he would end the day with a shed, you know, it was like the put a shed down close to him when we got close to the truck and let him find it. So he, he wins. We were in the woods and I was, you know, just wanted to see what he'd do. And I was like, Hey Rocky, find the sheds, go find the sheds. And he got all amped up, stood around, spun around a couple of times. And he just was like looking at me, like didn't know what to do. Right. And, and so I'm struggling with how do I get him to translate? you know, what we do in the backyard to get him to think about it whenever he's not in the backyard. So any, any tricks, tips, or suggestions for that? Oh man, we, we got time for another podcast. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> I, you know, my other life is bird dogs and I've done a lot of shed dog work. A lot of it, a lot of shed dog training. I've written about it. I've interviewed 
you know, Dokken was like one of the pioneers, Jeremy Moore. I mean, it, the, the thing about shed dogs, the, the thing that's awesome is the training can be fairly easy because everybody has a shed, mm-hmm. you know, like not everybody has a bunch of live roosters they can work with. Right. 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 The downside of shed hunting when you live in the real world is you probably have kind of shitty real shed hunting. <laughs> like you right. probably don't go out and just find tons of sheds. Right. That so you you got to work at first with what you've got, and mm-hmm. so you got to think about that dog. Is the the one thing that we ask bird dogs to do where there's pretty equal division between nose and eyes. Like we don't mm-hmm. we don't ask a. I, I should say well duck hunting they're looking a lot, but. If you take a, a pheasant dog out, you're not like, look for the pheasant, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just always your nose. Use your nose. And, you know, they might see them sometimes. But with a shed, you want that dog to be using his nose. But I kind of think that the the eyesight thing is more important, training mm-hmm. them to look for antlers. Mm-hmm. And so y- you got to recognize that. So you should be you should be using big antlers or, like, people will cut antler silhouettes out and then put a real antler below it. So you get them out into like a picked bean field and they look or, or a softball field or something, soccer field, whatever they look and they see a giant shed looking thing and they run up there and their reward is a shed underneath it. Right. It's just the eyesight connection. When you do the, the, the nose work with them, what, the, what he's working off of is your hand scent. It's not the scent of the shed. Uh. So that's where people hit a real problem is that dog always keys in on the scent of your hand way it's way more scent than the antler okay and so that's what they're working on which is okay to start with like mm-hmm. you just want to make that association this is a fun game you're a retriever go retrieve this we'll, you'll get praise a treat whatever right. so it's okay eventually you got to take the scent off of there and get them you you know there's some commercial scent out there you can buy dawkins got one jeremy's got one and that's to mimic like Dawkins mimics that waxy base that like a fresh antler has, mm-hmm. you know, um, but but a lot of times they're just seeing it. They see something white. So like my first dog that I trained for sheds, I, I didn't know this was happening. I learned this later, but she would see some like piece of white trash in the woods somewhere and she'd run to it <laughs> because she was like, oh, that, that might be an antler, you know, and right. I didn't make that connection until I learned later what was going on. And so what I ended up doing, this is kind of how I, I figured out a lot about uh, deer, like scent killing sprays and things mm-hmm. like that is trying to work with my dog and make sure I don't want her to smell my hand. Right. So I would take an antler, spray it down with, you know, some kind of scent eliminating spray, throw it in our backyard where we've got kind of like a little pond and kind of wild area. And two days later, I would take her out where I knew she couldn't see it. It's not visible right. and she'd be running downwind, stop on a dime and go get it. Hmm. And I thought that dog's still picking up that extra scent on there. And I know these are old sheds. It's not like they're, they're not right. giving off scent like a bird is. Right. So the only thing I found that really worked was ozone unit. Like hmm. I could kill the scent on gloves right. and a shed. And then you could see the dog have to work with its eyes. Hmm. And it kind of made me rethink a lot of the deer stuff. <laughs> like I'm like, okay. <laughs> You know, because right. if you look at a, a dog's nose and a, and a deer's nose as far as scent receptors, you know, they know dogs are smelling in parts per trillion. Right. So I, ha- I had a guy who's an, a researcher on that explain it to me. as you've, if, if you take an Olympic-sized pool and there's like three drops in there of water, that's what that dog's smelling. Like, wow. It, it, I shouldn't say that. If it's full of water and there's three drops of something else, right. that's what they're smelling. Wow. That's That's the level they're going down to. And you have to assume deer are like – 
real close, right? Right. And so you got to take that dog and you got to eventually get to the point where I, I use find the bone, but you have, you have your own command, but it's just, it's, it's got to be easy, 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 a little bit more, diff- like a little bit tougher terrain, but the like baby steps, right? Like right. we always, we, we don't give them enough time to develop a lot of times. Right. And it has to be geared toward some of this is eye work. Some of this is nose work. And eventually when you get out there to walk around the woods and you chuck some antlers around and give them some easy stuff, then make it harder in that actual environment. Right. Okay. So it sounded like I went from crawl to like, Hey, let's go ahead and run a marathon. It's like, so everybody does. Right. Yeah. I think it's because it's just, it's so much fun watching him work. I'm just like, and he loves it, you know? And I'm just like, man, it would be super cool if he can go out and find sheds. Cause I enjoy having him in the woods with me. And I, I know he, you know, I was getting ready to go out today to hang cameras and he saw me get my, my gear out and he was like lost his ever loving mind. Thought he was going, yep. you know, it's like, he yep. just gets geeked up to go too, And, uh, I'm like, it just make it that much more enjoyable spending that time with him and stuff like that. Whenever we, you know, if he could find some sheds and stuff like that and, you know, selfishly, it's like, I'd like to have the sheds and yeah. if I'm being honest, I'm really shitty at finding them so I can use all the help well, I can get, you know? So this is, this is kind of the reality with it though, is like, if you, you know, I, I used to, sh- before we had the girls, I shed hunted a lot right. and I would find like maybe six an entire winter, you mm-hmm. know, I thought I'm going to train this freaking dog and it's going to be lights out. And I'd find like eight, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, <laughs> it's not, and, and it's because I'm not, I'm not in a place where this is going to be on fire, but right. I, you know, the biggest antler I've ever found on public land, my golden retriever found it. And I've had my lab find antlers that I, I wouldn't have found. Right. And so it, like you said, it's just more fun walking around with them. And so it's yeah. like, it's mostly just to have more fun with your dog. Yeah. Like, 100%. Really, but they will find them and it's, you know, you can kind of train it all year and you, it's not like uh high stakes, right? Like it's not right. like you're going driving out to South Dakota and you want your dog to be awesome on pheasants when it has no experience on it. Like this is like, who cares? Like if it does, if, if it does he a finds, little bit better for you. Yeah. If you find sheds, great. If it doesn't, I don't find any usually either, you know, so it's not like yeah. a, it's not a, it's not a big deal. Cause he typically goes on trips with me. He, you know, he, he went up to the Poconos with me. We spent a weekend in the, in the camper and stuff like that. And so he just, it's just kind of cool to have a, a companion. Cause a lot of this stuff is a solo mission. A lot of times, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's just cool to have a buddy, you know, a dog along with me. Cause it just makes it that much more enjoyable. You got a little, a little camp, a camp buddy to hang out with in the evenings and, and stuff like that. So it's, you know, and he listens well in the timber. So he's not like a pain to, to take along, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's not going to run off or anything like that. So it's just, I was like, if I can up the ante a little bit and have him, you know, really partake, I was like, that'd be super cool to watch. So, yeah. Do you, have you been with him and found one and had him pick it up yet? I haven't yet. It wasn't until actually after I got back from a scouting session where we found a couple sheds and I was like, I was like, man, I was like, it, it wasn't a prize shed, should we say? And so I finally was like, all right, I got a shed I'm willing to give to the dog. I was like, let me see if he yep. can, let me see if he can figure this out. And then yeah. I watched some of the, I watched some of Jeremy's videos, I think. Um, just to kind of how to get started and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I'll just go outside and start making it a game with him and see how he does and see if he even cares, you know? And so, yeah. but I should have known that he would, I mean, that's what he's built to do yeah. is go find stuff, you know? And so like, he yeah. thinks it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, and you know, this is, this is way, this is tangent level stuff here, but 
their quality, like your quality of life gets better when you go on those trips and you take them out and he's just mm-hmm. with you. It's just more fun. Right. But his quality of life goes through the roof. Like dogs love going out into the woods and just smelling stuff and running free. Like yeah. it's just, they just love it. You know, and we, we, a lot of times we, even with like bird dogs, you know, like they kind of got their role, their house dog, their, you know, we throw the bumper for them or whatever, but there's a lot of times where you don't take them to do that stuff. And like, that's just pure enjoyment for them. They just love yeah. it. Like they yeah. just need that to go explore and smell everything and just have some fun. And it's just, it's good for everybody. Yeah. And that, and I mean, yeah, I have to remember too. It's like that they're, they're made to do that. Like yep. they, and they, and I think that's what some people forget. Not people who hunt and that use their dogs for that, you know, or, you know, work with their dogs that way, but people who own dogs just as pets, they're nice to have as pets, but like a lab, for example, it's like he was, bred to do a certain thing you know like in if you don't let him you know people think well it's it's too hard on him if he's out there all day or whatever it's like well no that's what he's made to do you know what i mean like that's you know he's built to do that you know yeah. that's like that's when he he wants to work yeah it's way worse for him to lay on the couch all day yeah exactly. way worse and it's it, you know the we're, we're kind of like we're in a weird spot with dog like working dogs mm-hmm. where we know more about their history and their coevolution with us than ever. And we know more about like what they actually need to eat and what they're like, they need to be happy and like why they're good with us and how they can be better with us. And yet in, in some ways, like some people are working with that and like really leveling up that relationship. And in other ways, we're making them less of what they are just because we want them to be something simpler for us, or we want them to be something else. So like, we're kind of like taking these divergent paths as pet owners and, you know, like obviously like bird dog owners are leaning into what bird dogs like, right. Generally right. more. Right. But it's a weird thing going on where we're like, well, I like, I like to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat organic food or whatever. Like that must be what my dog wants. It's like, no, no. <laughs> like, we know an awful lot about how we co-evolved with them and why, you know, they look us in the eyes and they're, they have these extra muscles in their eyebrows and shit like that. Like, there's a lot going on there and you're really, really underselling that relationship. If you just want to make them like a lazy human. Right. Exactly. It's like, we're not a great model. I would say, <laughs> you know, it's like if, if this past like 18 months has taught us anything, we're not a, we're not a stellar <laughs> model of anything. anything to- well, no, I mean, and if you pay attention to the dog world right now, you know, you got this boomerang situation going on with these COVID pups mm-hmm. where, People are like, oh, I'm stuck at home. I'm going to go get a dog. And like, well, now I'm going back to work. I don't want this dog anymore. Or I didn't really want a dog that bad. I was just bored and it seemed like a good idea to rescue one. And now I got this dog that I didn't train right. and I don't want to deal with it anymore. And it's like, oh, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, too, man, it's like you do have to learn. Like it took me a while with Rocky. Like he was we rescued him. You know, our daughter wanted a wanted a dog and I love dogs. I, I had a dog all growing up and stuff. And so I was like, you know, I wanted to get a dog as well. My wife's not a huge fan, you know, not that she doesn't like dogs, but we had, you know, we have a family now. So there's a lot of other responsibilities. She was more like just one more thing to have to manage and take care of. And I get it. Um, but we wanted our daughter to grow up with a dog and lab, good family dog that. And I was like, cool. I can also take him to like scout and he'll love it. He'll love being outside. I had Rottweilers before and stuff like that. And they're, they're just as happy to sit on the, hold the floor down as they are to go outside. You know what I mean? It's like, he was yep. just kind of have their own. They're very much a loner. Where our lab is, and this wasn't, this is what I wasn't prepared for, was that how much of a people person or people dog they are, where it's like, he's just, I'm like everything to him. You know what I mean? It's like, 
And it was hard for me to get used to because I'm like, I like my space. All the other dogs I've ever had previously also liked their space and we would converge and then we would go apart. Right. And him, he was like, you're my guy, whatever you're into, I'm into twice as much. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I sent my wife this mean meme. Uh, it was like, I was like, this sums up Rocky and I's relationship. His name's Rocky. I was like, Rocky and I's relationship, like perfectly. It was a guy that stood up off the couch, just like was sitting on the couch and stood up and the dog jumps up and goes, son of a bitch, I'm in. Like, yeah. <laughs> like doesn't even know what you're going to do yet. You know what I mean? Yep. But he's, he's all in, you know? And that was the hardest thing. He wasn't treated real well either by the previous owners. And so we had some like anxiety issues to try to work through with him and stuff like that, which was really, really hard. And I wasn't sure what he needed. And I finally figured out like he just wanted to be in like the living room and live upstairs. Like I was trying to give him his own place, like in the basement to where you'd have like the run of the basement and stuff like that. You know, when we would sleep at night and stuff and he would have accidents and all that kind of stuff. Once COVID hit, I was like, screw it. We're going to be home. Let's bring him upstairs and see if he can just live upstairs, you know, and because I don't know what else to do, you know? Yep. And as soon as we did that, it was like a light switch turned on. Yep. It was like, at that point he was like an awesome dog. He just wanted to be around his people. Yeah. That was it. Well, dude, they, I, I interviewed this woman kind of from out in your neck of the woods. Who's a, like a Harvard canine researcher. And hmm. she's like, really studied stress and anxiety in canines. Mm -hmm. Like what, what causes it? How do they like, how does it affect them over time? Like it layers, layers up and you might not see the effects for a few days. Like it's really interesting. But she said for our modern dogs, the biggest stressor is separation anxiety always. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's not, it's, it's because they like, we are their pack. Like they don't see you not as a dog. Like they, they're like this, right. this it literally is my guy. We are the pack. And yep. like, the family, however that shakes out, like that's not bullshit. Like that's, yep. that's how they view the world. And they're not, they're not safe alone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. like, they have tons of, they've, they have thousands and thousands of years where if you were a loner canid out there in the wild, you're in trouble. Like yeah. you did something bad. You don't have like, yeah, you, your safety is gone and they, they need that. Like, yeah. That's I mean, they've, interesting. They've, oh, dude, it's the, the coevolution of, of man and dog is, freaking fascinating like yeah. they have you know if you if you take like a wolf they have these muscles in their in their face that aren't developed that the way a domestic dog is and it's because it can sh change the shape of their eyes and they can give you those puppy dog eyes mm. and it's because they learned they like this is an unintentional like evolutionary thing like well i, I guess maybe you could say it's intent they didn't choose it it just happened through evolution right. but they they learned to hack the oxytocin feedback loop that developed in us when we look at our infants. Hmm. So when you look into your baby's eyes, you get this oxytocin kick in your brain, this, right. this good feeling. So does the baby. Dogs somewhere along the way figured Jeez. out if we look in their eyes, this happens. <laughs> it's not right. supposed to. And it only gets better. Like the cuter they look, the more we look at them. And they, hmm. I mean, there's, there's so many things like that with them that are just like that became because of their relationship with us. Right. Like that's, that's the crazy, only like, man. Wolves don't have that. Cause they don't, we don't have this. Like cats don't have it yet because our evolution or, you know, like our co-evolution with cats is only like half the age that it is with dogs. It's like, right. it's crazy. That, and I think cats are all serial killers if they were humans. 
So Dude, there's that. I, I thought so. <clears throat> I'm not a cat guy. I interviewed a woman who was really, really well-educated on this. And she said she thinks cats will be dog level companions eventually. She said they just got a late start. I'm like, no way. And she said, yeah. And part of the reason that they believe this is there's, there's, they can study certain pockets of dogs that, that started the evolutionary process with us, the co-evolutionary process and got dropped off. Like, I think, I think dingoes in Australia are one of the examples where for a while we were working with them and then they went out into the bush and we forgot about them. And so they're like halfway there. So they can study these these moments or these these animals that are like that got stunted like in the the coevolutionary process. It's freaking crazy. That's crazy, man. It's like I yeah. there was there was a period of time in my life where I actually worked for a, a breeder and the old the old fellow that that was the trainer there when we got really busy and I had some time, he actually was teaching me how to obedience train. That was all I ever learned how to do was just I could I could basically take a dog that's never been on a leash. And I could obedience train that dog and basically get it to do all of its sit, heal, stay commands with whatever language you want. And with all hand commands, you know, silent with all hand commands. And then yep. I was able to train uh, a dog off leash as well. And I could take a dog off leash and get him to do all of his commands and never be on a leash and not dart my Roddy. When I lived in Orlando, I used to walk around our neighborhood with him off leash and he would just walk by me on the sidewalk and just never leave my side. Just, he would heal the entire time. And when I stopped, he sat, you know, it's like there could be a cat run across in front of us or a squirrel. And he would never like think twice about running after it, you know, unless I told him to. Yeah. Um, and so I totally understood like the idea around that pack aspect of it, because that was one of the things that the, probably the biggest thing when we would have people come in that would want their dog trained, like, it might have some type of aggression or they were letting it on the couch or sleep in the bed or whatever. And I'm like, you know, the, and this might be complete bullshit. I don't know. You, you probably would know better than I would. But what I was taught was that when you're letting them do those types of things, you're, you're, you're telling them that you're kind of, they're on the same level in terms of the pack as you, because they view that as like the place where like those who are in charge of the pack are kind of staying like on the bed, especially if like, say if I'm the boss, if he views me as the alpha and I'm letting him lay on the couch with me, well, then he sees that as like, we're, we're kind of equals, right? Like there's not a whole lot of differentiation between he and I. And if I'm clearly the boss, then clearly like he's then certainly he feels like he ranks above my wife and my daughter then, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Type, type of thing. And so, you know, so one thing we always told folks is that like, look, if you're going to let them in the bed on the couch and stuff like that, you're always going to have this like semi-aggression issue because he's just trying to establish his position in the pack is all he's trying to do is assert his position. And you've told him through your actions that his, what he thinks his position is, is correct. Like you've reinforced that over and over. Right. And so you have to break that by you know, creating a delineation between dog is here. Everyone else is, is here. Right. So is there any, is there any truth to that? Or was the old man feeding me some bull? Um, yes and no. So it's really hard to say, you know, like we're, we're projecting, right? Like we're saying this dog's doing this because of this, Mm -hmm. but what, what you see a lot of times is like, yeah, maybe it might, that might be due somewhat to the pack mentality and that dog kind of jockeying for position, Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's just about the, you know, like you're, you're asking them to do unnatural things they don't want to do. So if right. they're going to test you all the time, like, mm-hmm. can I get away with this? And so when you, when you look at like, you, you could have a badass dog and let it sleep in your bed if you trained it right. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's, they, they could be, you could do that. But what, you, what happens a lot of times is, is that kind of idea, like, oh, the dog can come up here. The dog can do that. Like that dog's going to get mixed signals a lot of times. Like mm-hmm. the, there's like control sometimes and not control other times. Or like, I got to yeah. obey sometimes and I don't have to other times. And they are like kids. They're going to figure out, you know, like if you're the softy or your wife's the softy, or if when we're in the house, this guy lets me do whatever I want. But when we're in the field, I got to kind of shape up a little bit. And they're, they're always testing that stuff. And so right. it's more like consistency. Yeah. I mean, it, it just is like you, if, if, and it's, it's like working with that dog, right? Like not just w- what we're learning now is like, you can, you can get compliance out of a dog a lot of different ways. Like you mm-hmm. can use force, you can use fear, you can use treats, you can use love, but really working with this, this idea that like they, they are, they did evolve to work with you. Like they evolved right. to look you in the eyes. They evolved to like pay attention to your gestures and your mannerisms. Like they're, they're reading you and like, you can use that to your benefit and get a lot out of them, mm-hmm. but you're still going to be asking them to do unnatural behaviors. Like there has, there has to be that line. Like this is like, if you look at the problems people have with dogs, right. It's like a recall. Like, do you have a solid recall? Like, can you stop that dog and get him back to you? Right. That's a hard one to get. Cause it, like if that dog's chasing a bunny or something, like, He's like, this is more fun than, than what you're, you're going to you. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the same thing with steadiness, like getting them to sit on command and do a little treat training, whatever that stuff's pretty easy, mm-hmm. like to kind of start to establish, but like, can you, can you get it always? And mm-hmm. then you think about like with hunting dogs, one of the hardest things to do is steadiness. Like the, you know, in mm-hmm. the duck dog world, it's like, if somebody has a bad dog, it's because it breaks. You know, right. and it, and it's so common because that's so unnatural. That dog's not right. meant to just like, it didn't evolve to like, just sit there next to you and wait for you to shoot and have this awesome, exciting thing and then send it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like they're not patient, you All know? Right. And so it's, it's those things where like, if you, if you don't build up to them and, and train them in them and like, this, this is my expectation to you and the fun will continue. If you follow these rules, if, if you don't follow these rules, the fun stops, like, there, it, it's like a long process thing and it goes for every part of their life. So you can, yeah. you can like, you can have them on the bed with you. What else are you doing? Right. You know, like, right. are you like, are you really giving them the, you know, the requisite amount of time per day? And did you, did you put in the time like in that eight weeks to one year or two years when like really good dogs are made? That's right. not matter. Yeah. And that's the, that was the biggest thing with this guy. Cause when we got him, he was, he was a year old when we got him a lot of, I won't say bad behavior, just not treated well. And so he wasn't sure of himself and he wasn't sure of people around him, you know, and stuff like that. The other dogs that I've had, like my Roddy and then the, the Mastiff that I had, they, uh, I had them from the time they were eight weeks old. You know, I'm always kind of pretty tough on my dogs early. Like they don't get a lot of leeway as far as like, you know, uh, they're not allowed to misbehave essentially. And they're not allowed to miss a command and stuff like that. And because whenever they get to be two, three years old, you know, four years old and they're mature, it's like they're on autopilot at that point. You know what I mean? It's like, they're just like, they're perfect. You know, it's like, I tell them to do something, you know, my Roddy, like I said, like a squirrel could run out and he wouldn't even think about running after it unless I told him to this guy (laughs) rabbit gone. You know what I mean? Now, if I yell, you know, give him the dad voice, he'll stop and come back, you know what I mean? But his first thing, you know, his first kind of move is like, Oh, I'm gonna chase that thing, you know? Um, 
So part, part which is like, what they do. It's just what they do. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I so said, I was like, I don't know that he'll ever not do that, you know? So, yeah. well, I mean, you can, I don't know, you can get it out of them. I mean, it just, when you're, when you're dealing with a dog that's already got one year of established behavior, good or bad, like there's, yeah, that's, that's a tough challenge. Like yeah. that's, that's why you don't, when you get a puppy, you don't miss those windows right. because go like reverse engineering them and starting over is hard. And right. when you're talking about something like you're, you know, you're talking about like a specific behavior, like, Oh, this dog chases, well, every dog chases rabbits. Like that, right. they're going to like, you can, you can get them out of that. But when you mention like, he's not very confident, like that's, that's a problem. Right. Cause it, that's what you're doing with that puppy. Like, you know, through all the introduction work and, you know, like feathers to dead birds, to live birds, to, you know, getting them in the water for the first time in the right situation, gunfire introduction, your baby step and confidence in them yeah, and, yeah. you know, new environments, all that stuff. You miss those windows. They come, it comes back around on you. Oh, it totally point. does. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you, you could tell he was not used to new environments when we got him because when we first traveled and took him back home with us, I mean, he was a mess, you know, when we went back to visit, our, our family and stuff like that, because he just, you could tell he'd never been anywhere, you yeah. know? And so it was like, now he loved being in the car. So I, obviously he had been in cars before, you know? And so he was okay with that, but you know, it's, uh, he's gotten more, he'd never been in the water. I don't think before either as crazy as it is for a lab. I remember the first time I introduced him to water. Like he, he was like, Oh, what's this stuff? Walked in the bottom dropped out. And he was like, <laughs> it took him like a minute to figure out he knew how to swim. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, and then we actually went on vacation and my dad's, and had him in the pool. And then like, I introduced it to him. Like I, I was scouted and he got into the water and I didn't realize he'd never been in before. And then I, as soon as he got in, I realized he'd never been in before. And so <laughs> when we went to my dad's that summer, I made a point to get him in the pool and get him to swim back and forth and stuff like that to understand like, Hey, the water's not scary. You know how to do this. And then I couldn't get him out. Yeah. Like it was just like, that's all he wanted to do was swim, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he just needed to be confident with it. You know, like he just yeah. hadn't had the experience, dude. It's, it's weird. You know, we make that assumption that labs will just take to water. It's really common for people to have labs that don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it is that first exposure is scary or too cold or something. Like when you, when you hang out with like, you know, really well-versed retriever trainers, their process for like a water introduction seems like way overkill, but mm-hmm. it's like, Get a hot day, find something with a really gradual sandy bottom, get that dog working so the, the water's appealing, and then make sure it gets into a situation where it will never get in above its belly unless it wants to. And, like, it's, like, all it is is, like, all these little safety checks built in there so mm-hmm. they don't have that situation where it's, like, now i got to work this out of them. It's just the same thing with gunfire introduction. Like, it, that one's worse. If you screw that up, you are you got to – Gun big problem. problem ahead of you you know it, yeah. the, the water thing like you can usually you, you usually get them to come around on that but sometimes you don't like they're quirky they're in, they're individuals mm-hmm. right. and so when you pay attention to like the people who've dealt with a wide variety of dogs like they they really build in like they they, they have a protocol and they follow it because they know if it goes wrong it might break really bad for the rest right. of that dog's life right Nice, man. Well, now we've been going for two hours. That was a false, <laughs> that was a false ending that we had earlier, but I'm glad we got into the dogs. Cause that was the, actually one thing I wanted to talk to you about. And we'll have to do a whole podcast on dogs. Cause I'm just, I'm really getting into working with him. Cause he's, he's awesome. You know, this past year has been like a watershed moment for him. And, and it makes me super happy because he's now like fully part of the family and he's like, he's calmed down and he feels safe here now and stuff like that. And so 
now I'm like, oh, how can I just get him involved more? How can I do more stuff with him? And so, can you uh, blood trail with him out there? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, I might need some pointers for that because I. Well, I'll let you know because this is going to be my the, this pup that I'm picking up is going to be the first one. We just got legalization here with. Okay. Um, I think it's I think it's leash tracking. I think it's the same in Wisconsin. It is. I think it's the same thing here now. They got to be on a on a cord at like a thirty foot or shorter cord or something. I'm pretty but, sure it's the same. I'm pretty sure it's the same thing here. A buddy yeah. of mine. Um, my buddy Dan Bayes, his wife, and he got a, a blood tracking dog. I want to say like two years ago, maybe. And they're out around they're out around Pittsburgh. And every I don't know for certain, but every picture I've ever seen with them or video I've seen with them has been on a on a lead of some sort. So I think it's the same yeah. thing here. So yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Uh, yeah. you know, walking through the woods in the dark with a dog on a checkboard. But yeah, you won't get tangled up on anything with that. <laughs> it's but it's. They are, you know, they're not foolproof, right? Like they, right. they can make mistakes on a, on a trail. But when you, when you think about like how they, how just canines evolve to recognize the smell of a distressed animal or a mm-hmm. wound, like a mortally wounded animal, they have that hardwired into their brain to follow mm-hmm. that. And so oh, I've wow. heard, I, like I said, I haven't done it yet. And I know Jeremy really well, and he's really good at training these game recovery dogs. Mm-hmm. I've heard it's not like a terribly difficult thing to get them to click. You know, some, really? some stuff takes a little, oh, takes some work to get them to go, okay, this is the, this is the mission. I got it. Right. I've heard that one comes pretty natural because like, if you think about it, like it probably should, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's food. That's, that's how I'm living. You know, yeah. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. So but, I, I don't know, I, but I think, I think that's something you could train into a dog at any age. Nice. Well then I'm, once you start, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start with it. We'll do a little compare notes. You got a, You got a young one. I've got an old one. We'll see how they each do. <laughs> Definitely. But, but man, before I let you get going, buddy, tell people where they can find out more about what you got going on this, uh, this year. Well, if they like this dog tangent, we went on, I, I do have sporting dog talk. That's the, the other podcast I've got. And mm-hmm. I'm interviewing trainers and breeders and canine researchers and, historians and it's fun if you you like dogs it's it's that's what it's about um doing a bunch of stuff for meat eater now got a whole bunch of stuff coming out with them really soon so most of my whitetail stuff's going to be there i I should say that all of my whitetail stuff's going to be there for a while now um so that's you know there'll be videos there'll be podcasts podcasts, everything you could possibly think of writing yep yep (laughs) nice so that's that's where I'll be for the most part. And then on, you know, if people invite me on podcasts like this. <laughs> right. Or follow you on Instagram, see what you're see what yeah. you're up to. Yeah. Tony J. Peterson. You can see some you can see my daughters catching giant fish. Yeah, lately. man. They're ripping lips lately, man. I was I was oh, checking dude. it out. So fun. Nice. They're just they are just like cocky. Like they, <laughs> they just love showing everybody the the size of the bat. And they're catching big fish like it's yeah i saw that i was like these aren't small fish this this isn't just like little kid fishing off the dock they're catching you know 20 plus inch smallies and 20 plus inch largemouth and being the tournament before before you know it they like uh you know there's a lot there's a lot of little boys up there where we go up to the lake that you know cousins and friends of the family and stuff and they really like talking about the size of fish they're catching because those little boys aren't catching those yeah nice Awesome, man. Well, dude, it's always a pleasure hanging out with you, buddy. I always appreciate you coming on. Always good chat. And uh, let's uh, let's not make it so long next uh, till we get to chat again next time. Whenever you need it, buddy. Thank you so much for having me on, man. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.